Since the early days of European colonization in North America, the great abundance of natural resources was apparent to settlers and their colonial sponsors alike. Timber was chief among these, as the tremendous size and unspoiled nature of the forests that spanned from Canada down through Florida provided fuel, building material, and a source of jobs for a great many people. As the centuries progressed and the frontier closed on the Pacific, America started having to contend with the fact that its resources were not unlimited, and the very real consequences to the environment as well as to the communities living amongst the trees of restrictions on logging had to be weighed. Today it is less so the forest owl that is endangered, but instead the very notion of an American small town living away from large cities, self-sufficient, and able to provide a life that for many was quintessentially free and working class. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, we have a, a topic tonight that uh, we're going to get to shortly, but uh, we would be remiss if we didn't at least uh, give our uh, sentiments and prayers, as uh, Hans was uh, asking uh, or suggesting we do, uh, to the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse fiasco slash trial going on right now. Uh, so, gentlemen, um, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you guys go first. Well, um, by the time you're hearing this, depending on when it comes out, uh, either the jury will be in deliberation or they'll have decided. It doesn't change, I think, what I'm about to say in that uh, no matter what happens, um, this young man's life is ruined forever. Uh, he's, 17, he's 18 now. He was a 17-year-old last year when this all happened. Uh, the entire event is disgusting from start to finish. Uh, every member of the Kenosha Police Department should be ashamed of themselves. Every member of uh, the Kenosha city government should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, and everyone who plays some role in the Wisconsin state government should be deeply ashamed of themselves. Uh, you allowed a war band of freaks, uh, literal Jewish pedophiles, and various other vagrant types to run roughshod over a small town. Um, 
for almost no reason. You did nothing about it. And it took a very brave, uh, heartful young man from Illinois to at least make an attempt to try and instill some peace, uh, try and be vigilant, try and help people, try and help property owners. And all of these people in power have conspired and worked and schemed uh, to crucify a young man who is barely an adult uh, for the crime of trying to help and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, that phrase gets thrown around a lot by uh, you know, less than savory defense attorneys and so forth. Uh, this might be one of the few times when that's actually very true. Wrong place, wrong time. Didn't mean for any of this to happen. Uh, it, it's it's very it's very sad. It's very disheartening. It's weighed on me a lot over the last year, effectively, and uh, it's somewhat invigorating to see that people are uh, finally looking at this with a critical lens and realizing that this case was not nearly as cut and dry as it had been made out to be. This was not Kyle Rittenhouse was, has been portrayed over the last year. Well, ironically it was just not, well, not yeah, the way they think. Yeah, exactly. Kyle Rittenhouse has been portrayed over the last year as a, uh, a hardcore white nationalist sniper effectively in the media. Uh, I mean, there's pictures of this young man that showed up in Joe Biden's campaign material last year. <laughs> it, it, it's insane. It's completely insane. It's divorced from reality. And it's been invigorating to see that people are finally looking at this with a critical lens. I don't think most people understood that one of the uh, quote unquote humans that was uh, uh, killed by Rittenhouse was a five-time convicted pedophile who <laughs> yep. was inexplicably in Kenosha that evening doing what exactly? Who was – no one has asked. Who's paying this freak's bills? Who, who brought him there? This, this is a professional goon, a literal like pedophile de you know, reject that – yeah. Why was he there? Why is it only? Why are people only realizing this now? That this was not like some innocent protester. This is a hardened, violent, uh, sexually sadistic felon who was uh, attacking a young man. Uh, one of the other individuals is probably one of the ugliest human beings I've ever seen in my life, and he was a career drug addict and woman abuser. And just all around freak. I, you know, these are grown men beating up a 17 year old for asking them to not blow up a gas station and not set a property owner's cars on fire. And they chased him and they attacked him. They nearly broke his neck and he defended himself. And this is the state of the country. So, like I said at the outset, if you 
if you happen to be listening to this and you're at all involved with the Kenosha city government or police department or the Wisconsin state government, um, I hope you are deeply ashamed of yourself. I hope you hate yourself because you allowed this all to happen and you put this really poor young man in this situation by not doing anything to prevent this. I have a couple things. So I remember being that age and I don't want to date myself for obvious reasons, uh, given the climate we live in, you know, we can't really be too open on these types of formats, but I remember being that age and I remember being a lot like him, at least in the sense that I was frustrated with the lack of action around me and I wanted to go out and do things and I didn't do anything as, uh, extreme as, as bring a rifle, but it, obviously begs the question, why did he feel like he needed to do that? We live in a country where there is really no effective rule of law. There's no security provided by our so-called protectors and uh, in the police department. And so at 17 years old, he knew correctly that he had to bring a weapon with him to defend himself. And they're going to try to make this about gun control, completely missing the fact that the people who were chasing him, which was hidden by the FBI. They had footage of this frigging chase scene from a drone they had floating overhead secretly, uh, which they withheld and somehow it was released, uh, thankfully. But this guy was being chased by people with weapons and there's no police, of course. And I've been to uh, nothing related to BLM, but I I just remember when Trump was elected, I, I went to one or two of these things just where people were getting together, private citizens, just to support the, uh, the president and Antifa would show up and the police wouldn't do anything. And I'd never seen it as so blatant uh, in my life before, but this has been years of this now. And so he kind of grew up in that climate and the opponents of people defending themselves uh, against the, uh, the ruling class effectively who want to take your guns away are going to say that he having a gun was wrong to begin with. Well, I'm going to say it was absolutely right because there's no way that you can survive in this stupid country unless you protect yourself without using these bozos who work for a pension and effectively uh, sit on their fat ass in a cop car and watch everything with their windows rolled up. Um, all, nearly all the all the police. By the way, if anyone's been paying attention to this trial, nearly every member of the Kenosha Police Department who's had to testify is physically repulsive. <laughs> These are like the. Well, did you ever watch the, the Simpsons where they would portray the cops like this? I mean, I, yeah, I didn't I mean, quite clue them, into it as a kid, but it was like, you know, a lot of truth to this. Oink, I mean, oink. One of you know that they had this. Um, Again, quote unquote, human, you know, a lot of these individuals don't even represent people on a physical level and maybe a mental one. And this fat specimen, uh, presumably, he I, just, works I call for, them two legs. Yeah, he works for Kimonosha or something who uh, is part of some technical division, allegedly. And he babbled through his his answers about the video enhancement technology he used and he claimed he spent 20 hours enhancing these images which in hindsight look blurrier and make less sense as to what's going on than the original footage it, you know it, on some level 
not only are they working to crucify him, I think because they're embarrassed that this young man like actually accidentally stood up for this town and defended it against these freakish carpetbaggers that just kind of came out of the woodwork from all over to ransack it. They're also just weird and they're, they're strange creatures that seem to not have an issue maybe even. They don't even seem to feel any sympathy for this kid. They don't seem to care that their town was ransacked. They had some other cop. He came across as, as uh, I would describe him as functionally retarded. Uh, he couldn't speak. He had a very strange uh, mannerism. He, his eyes were flicking back and forth. How this individual became a cop is, uh, it's not surprising on some level, but it's also strange. Um, but he ended up, I, I believe he's the cop that uh, refused to even talk to Rittenhouse after Rittenhouse tried to approach him and say, I just shot somebody, I need help. This cop, who had been parked two blocks down the road in the middle of a riot, watching it unfold, uh, threatened to pepper spray this young man and screamed at him to go away. And he admitted that. And he didn't seem ashamed or 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 regretful of his action he was doing nothing he admitted that he he was doing nothing to protect his town he wasn't trying to save anyone he wasn't helping property owners he wasn't making arrests he was doing nothing he was sitting in his car someone walked to up protect to protect and car. serve the chamber of commerce someone walked up to his car asking for help trying to say something happened and he threatened him and told him to go away. This is the you know. If this anyone's is the actually kind of, familiar with the pigs, though, this is just this is very common. I have I have a lot of personal stories about exactly things like this happening, where they show up on a, a scene and basically uh, start attacking the victim of a crime. It happens all the time. Yeah, I, I, I guess what I want to what I'd like to address on this, I don't have a my sympathy is obviously always with anyone who's being unjustly persecuted by the system. Uh, I wonder to what extent this is a teachable moment for anybody. I, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. I haven't necessarily seen much or heard much that makes me think that if people have really gotten it or not. But uh, to Adam's point, when I was that age, the last thing you would have seen me doing is wandering around the streets with a rifle, uh, trying to <laughs> maintain order. <laughs> I would have absolutely been parked on, you know, a nice view spot and like cracking a few beers and watching the city burn. And to be honest, I probably would be doing that today because I was just like, he's obviously a naive kid, you know, um, he was a, he's a believer, a society believer. And, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a small Midwestern town. I grew up in a, in a mega city. Uh, so, so maybe that accounts for some of it, but I was very good at an early age with respect to the, the myth of society. And I, I don't like hold it against the kid for uh, believing that uh, it's, I wonder if he's been dispelled of it though. 
because I mean, the farce about all of this is like nobody seems to be interested in why like riots are now a normalized part of civic life. <laughs> it's like this happened over the course of a year. You just have cities burning, and then like somebody. Uh, well, the Chicago know, PD, for all their worth, it's... are preparing apparently for riots if the uh, trial doesn't go the way that BLM wants to. And BLM is uh, going to be responsible for those riots. Uh, and there is a TikTok video, Twitter video that I've seen where these guys are basically saying, just like we did with uh, Chauvin, you know, we, we got to make sure that this uh, this trial goes the way we want it. And he, what he was implying was he, uh, they need to intimidate the jury like they did with the Chauvin trial. Um, and there's going to be consequences, I think just for, uh, not just for the jury, but for the town. And so the police apparently are gearing up to, uh, probably suppress more Kyle Rittenhouse's. <laughs> it, it's really, it's really awful. This, this, uh, ridiculous system we've found ourselves in for sure. Um, well, it is, you know, what Nick is saying. Is, I mean, it's a total fucking farce. There's no question about that. Yeah, with what Nick is saying, that it, it, it's strange how uh, riots have just become an expected part of American life, and it's not uh, it's not out of order in American history necessarily. Um, and there are countries where riots are a given. Uh, France. Yeah, like, I was thinking uh, France. Notorious, more like French Parisian society, but France in general was. That, that's more over like labor disputes. Yes, yeah, usually so there, not there's like a, this racial stuff. Well, it's not even just the racial stuff. It's there are often real causes or issues in the French have a history of making voices heard, which is fine. And uh, but what's interesting about America now is, uh, you know, we have riots over police action we have riots over nebulous intractable uh, cultural problems we have riots over the uh you know if there's a if there's an outcome to something that is not desirable to certain people there's riots and and you know and sometimes then you have those riots spawn more crimes and then then there's more riots if things don't go a certain way and it's this chain reaction that never ends. Uh, and in parallel to that, what's equally strange is that nowhere will you find people who uh, genuinely seem interested in defending their area. You do have some pockets. You do have some level of resistance. Uh, but... You don't have any massive upswell. Why is it that uh, this young man was the only one who even accidentally put himself in that situation? Because at that age, he hasn't experienced the full weight of the system crushing him yet. And, and well, this is why we see the kids sort of doing this stuff. I mean, it was like the, what was it, the Covington Catholic kids? I mean, they, they gave him the same treatment. Um you know, once you've reached our age, you've seen this crap time and time again to the point where you kind of tune out. And I don't know if we're going to, we, we should be doing what the kids are doing. I don't know. But um, I, I don't 
necessarily think so, but I think it's it's almost a rite of passage. Well, that when you, I was, you have, I was, uh, yeah. I, go ahead. Well, I, I mentioned like I, I was pretty jaded at that age with respect to the myth of American society, but I was still very idealistic, and typically you find. Uh, a lot of idealism amongst youngsters because for obvious reasons, you know, I mean, it goes without saying, but I don't know. This kid's motivations are pretty like <laughs> Midwestern, like normie kind of thing. You know, it's like my town, like why you burn my town, stop burning my town. What is going on here? I, I protect like that's fine, man. Like it's, I, it's, I would argue that's a, a healthy reaction healthy. in a functioning society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, I mean, I would be like, well, why, where can can we get these guys to like make their way over to the precinct and burn that down? I mean, <laughs> just saying. But you know, that was the one building that didn't get the, uh, in, in all this drama in Kenosha. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Nick's yeah. first book was the Anarchist yeah, exactly. Cookbook. I, I did own it. Actually, I, I did. Uh, I, I was like, I was reading like Bakunin and shit back then. When I was like 17. <laughs> every, every fat I was poor, you know, in, I, in Kenosha was busy like turning their police precinct into Fortress America that night. And they, they told every other yeah, resident in business. Yeah, they have like the MRAPs like yeah. lined up in front of the precinct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 uh, you know, I, I do want to say, though, about this from like a political perspective, we're kind of just talking about this from a human perspective, but I do want to kind of caution people uh, about like the politicized, polit, how do you say, politic, uh, fuck it, politicization, is that, is that right? Yeah, politicization. Do I have that right? Okay. Well, yeah, so, you know, this is a really, I would, I would uh, label this as a gimme for the American right. Like the traditional, just like love my guns, uh, American, right? I mean, it's just, it's such an easy one. Like, you know, he, he shot like people who are basically like nominal communists, right? Like that's the, that's the narrative, the Antifa, you know, they're communists. Uh, and they were clearly Italian. Like, it was a clear documented on video case of self-defense. Like the kid is like also well-meaning and, you know, this is all easily demonstrated and the particular two legs that he shot were pale face two legs. So I do want to make the point. I know like probably other people thought of this and, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it anyways, that uh, under other circumstances, if it was inherently more political, like if he, for example, shot uh, people under different circumstances and he shot different people under different circumstances, I don't think that you would see as much unified support amongst the like red state masses. Well, I mean, uh, you would if, have he's, a lot if he had shot even one person media. of color, I don't think you would see as much support from whites. Uh, I think that's probably obvious too. But... Yeah, to yeah. Nick, to, yeah, to Nick's point, I mean, you had, you, had, you had the entire um, uh conservative media apparatus, I would call it, along with uh, various other groups and personalities, factions that uh, uh, 
uh, were calling for the head of uh, of Officer Chauvin and wanted a national day of mourning for uh, convicted felon and uh, crackhead and porn star George Floyd. Uh, and Nick, Nick is exactly right in this and that uh, Rittenhouse was extremely lucky in that he in it and it's very very tragic and uh uh strange to say in that sense but he is lucky that he shot uh people who nominally look white at least in skin tone maybe not phenotype but uh nominally look white he was lucky and they would have crucified him. Yeah, and he's lucky too that this was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And totally. the jury my, my would point have crucified overall, him. I'm just saying that the political content of this is pretty vapid. Yeah, there's not a lot here. I mean, we'll see how it goes. There could be something uh, politically relevant that comes from how it all actually shakes out. But as it stands now, this is just. <laughs> it's only. It's only really politicized because of the context that we're in now. It's it's just it's he's not he wasn't a political actor. Agreed. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a uh, player, but he was a pawn. If 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 you look at the broader context of why he was even there, I mean, he was, and that's why they're trying to crucify him. I mean, he was a foot soldier of what the left will deem as like the. Uh, retrograde America and he was not I mean, a I mean, does he belong to any organization no 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 no, no, no but, but, but he's still like he's case. still he's influenced kid. and participating in a political process that has actually gone semi-hot it's no longer arguing because arguing doesn't seem to uh, get us anywhere unfortunately um so I, I do think he I don't know how you define political political action actors but i mean politics is effectively using force to uh, influence people and you know if you're using weapons i mean uh and it was over uh yes i I agree he wasn't necessarily trying to uh, use his weapon to enact change but he was at a event that was very political so in any case i think i get what you mean but just just wanted to say this is this is a very political trial in my opinion. Yeah. In a very bizarre way, it's like, you know, the equivalent, the, you know, I, I, I it's probably the best example you can have. It's right in front of us. So just roll with it. But it's, I mean, it's just such, it's such an obvious clear case of, of self-defense and sure. they managed to make this into something totally fucking insane well what's surprising is they kind of didn't and i I suppose we'll see how the jury feels and votes but they have not done a good job i mean they did a much better job with uh saint floyd than uh than with this one and and james fields as well um who i mixed up with kyle rittenhouse but you know similar political media uh firestorms were whipped up around these events and the other two were, I think, more successful for the left. I think this one, mainly because of just the facts and also the fumbling by the prosecution 
and I think a general sense in America that uh, this is getting out of hand, I think is working in Kyle's favor, but um, you know, yeah. It, speaking of out of hand, I, like the point I would emphasize to people that like, if I was talking to, you know, right wing types, like conservative types uh, who are, you know, pretty much across the board in my personal experience, uh, 100% in support of this kid is that it's just like, look, if you're, if you're in a situation where you're supposed to, you're supposedly like defending your town or your, you know, maybe whatever you lived a few miles away, but it, you know, talk about uh, local town or community, these kinds of words. Like if, if that's what you're doing, if you're, uh, if you're nominally defending that, but you have no support from the institutions of power of state, I mean, if you have nothing, you're just out there doing this. Uh, and then they persecute you. What does that tell you about the state of things? What does that tell you about the situation in America? And what does that tell you about your relationship towards the system? I mean, I think it's pretty cut and dry. The system is the enemy. Well, it, it may be, uh, but I think knowing what to do once you've recognized that is the bigger question. Um, but I suppose people need to go through that initial realization before they get anywhere else. Vote harder. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so let's uh, let's maybe talk about our topic of today. Yes, yes. So, uh, not sure how we transition, but we um, never give an inch. Yeah, uh, Nick is <laughs> referring real ones to will a, get that a, when a movie. That I did watch uh, based on his recommendation, which was quite good with uh, Paul Newman and a few other heavy hitters, Henry Fonda, Lee Remick. I don't remember the other people, but it was based in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, sometimes a great notion. Yeah, and the book was written in the 60s. Ken Kesey's epic novel. Right, who also wrote uh, One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I learned. Um, So I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I don't know if we want to start with the movie, but... It's based in a logging town in the Pacific Northwest and in a time when that was still a thing, frankly, and it was actually semi-viable economically, uh, roughly in the, the 60s. I'd say the, the heyday was the more the 50s for the middle class lifestyle that uh, is somewhat romanticized in the film, but uh, there were already signs that things were starting to go awry in the film, which came out in, uh, 1970, 71. And it uh, is an interesting topic to me because I've always, um, I've always liked industry. And one thing about the lumber industry is that is it's kind of neat in that it's uh, renewable. Uh, It's also tied to the land in the sense that it's, uh, obviously (laughs) extracting growing, uh, plants that are, Unlike uh, food, you know, they're, they're building materials and these things have been with us for thousands of years. So there's, there's a deep cultural connection with lumber and timber. And the fact that this stuff grows and to such great size, it's, it's sort of extraordinary how these big these trees were, especially when they weren't logging it intensively and, and the trees were uh, allowed to grow to great sizes. Uh, however, the, the landscape of the Pacific Northwest in particular was not always as one would imagine if you haven't uh, 
I mean, none of us have really lived in the prehistoric times, uh, but the the landscape was shaped definitely by a lot of fires, which we've talked about. And the notion of an old growth forest, which became a touch point for the environmental movement, uh, defending this uh, spotted owl, which I think was somewhat of a red herring, uh, actually. But uh, that that concept of having these giant trees, which really grow to such a gargantuan size that they don't they won't even fit on a logging truck uh, to a certain degree. Uh, they uh, they didn't really exist as much, I think, as many people would imagine because of those those wildfires. And the wildfires became something that was uh, addressed um, right around the the turn of the. 19th century, uh, after there was a gigantic conflagration, actually, I think in Northern Idaho, where the, uh, the firestorm basically just, uh, consumed like a huge portion of the panhandle got into Montana and it, it, it killed a lot of people. And so there was a big call for a, uh, a firefighting service for the forest. So that's, that's how the forest service came into effect. Is that when, are you talking about when Spokane burned down? I think so. Something like that. I don't remember the specific town, but it was, it was a uh, Northern Idaho and it was, uh, it was, it was huge. So, and that was when the, the region was still kind of, uh, underpopulated as it still somewhat is, but, uh, they were starting to get enough people where that was relevant enough for people to call for some kind of, uh, action to be taken. And so when the forest service started fighting these fires, these big groves of trees, which previously would periodically burn, every hundred years or so, uh, they just kept going and going and going. And so they, they got really gigantic. And then, uh, it was also a technology thing where, I mean, old school lumberjacks, those guys were tough and they were literally cutting these gigantic trees down by hand and they would work in one or two person, you know, teams, um, where you had one guy, you know, pulling, then the other guy would pull sort of like a seesaw back and forth with these big, uh, bow saws or, uh, I don't know what they're called, but they're, they're, they're long pieces Often of sheet wearing metal. women's clothing. <laughs> Wasn't aware of that, but, and then they would have uh, big horse drawn, uh, teams that would pull oh, come the logs. On, Monty Python. Come on, come on. Uh, I've seen a couple of those, but I don't know what the, what the one you're talking about. In any case. Um, so, these towns developed and it was a huge part of the Pacific Northwest and, and logging had always been relevant and important in American history, actually, because one of the reasons the English colonies became super important for the British was the uh, source of timber for the uh, British Navy. And so after the East coast effectively was all cut down and, and farmed uh, and, and pasteurized effectively uh, the frontier moved to the West and, the Great Plains are obviously uh, not a source of timber for obvious reasons, but once they, you get into the Rockies, you start getting into the uh, the snowpack levels that are sufficient to support uh, conifer forests, and this is what the uh, evergreen timbers are like in the Pacific Northwest. So 1800s, 1900s, um, and uh, up until maybe the late 70s and 80s of the you know 1970s and 80s, this uh, this industry was going really well, um, and then it all it all changed. And today, if you drive through these parts of uh, the United States, you'll see a lot of remnants of 
once prosperous logging towns, but they're no longer too prosperous. They often have drug problems uh, if they even have young people anymore. But for the past 30 years or so, these towns have been emptying out and uh, they're pretty much uh, defunct. And not only have they been emptying out, they've also been down. I, I wonder if there's a connection there. What was that? That they've been down? Oh, burning down. They've been on fire. Oh. Well that 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 happened um about a year ago. I didn't know if it was targeted at the logging I, yeah, itself, my point, I, but No, no, no. It's just the, the the absence of like I mean talk to anybody in logging industry that they can explain how this works. I mean, if you want to know why like Northern California and southern oregon and we're on fire the decline of the logging industry has a lot to do with it right and yeah because they don't they don't cut the forest down so there's a lot of fuel obviously and they don't uh, do controlled burns and so it makes sense i think there's also people lighting these things on fire uh, on purpose but um i agree with that uh you know i have i have a lot of notes uh but i've been speaking for a little bit so Hans, you've got some background on this industry. Uh, why don't you give us uh, where you think it would be good to give a background on this? Oh, I have so much stuff. This is actually a topic I've wanted to talk about for a while. I don't know if we'll fit all into one show, but uh, um, I thought I would start by uh, reading a passage from a very good book. It's printed almost 40 years ago, a little over 40 years ago by David Hounschel. It's made the rounds in our circles before. It's called the American system of mass production. And, uh, it's a, it's a great book that kind of analyzes American industry, a lot of advances in American industry, what made American industry so powerful and, uh, it speaks to a unique character of America. I've always found it very fascinating. I reference it from time to time for different shows, different topics. Um, and there's a uh, there's a whole chapter in here. It's actually chapter three on the woodworking industry in America, um, which is deeply tied to our lumber and timber industry. Uh, and I thought I would, you know, this this will go maybe into something we'll talk about at a later point, which was the machinery aspect of uh, of our lumber and timber industries and, and our sawmill industries and and so forth. Um, but I think there is something very unique about Americans in that we uh, we are surrounded by massive forests. There are still huge chunks of the country that are uh, they're slimming down, but they are wild forest old growth trees several hundred years old there's places where you can go you can find occasionally trees over a thousand years old in remote regions of california the midwest so forth but i thought i would read this passage because i think it speaks to uh the american fascination and and uh, skill with wood Wood is really what drove the United States to power in many ways, that and our, uh, our river systems. But we wouldn't have been able to exploit those river systems 
without the bountiful amounts of, uh, of wood in our continent. So uh, when Joseph Whitworth toured the industrial areas of the United States in 1853, he was deeply impressed by America's bent towards all types of labor-saving machinery. He found many ingenious metalworking machines in American shops. He had noted carefully that on the whole, the American machines were flimsy compared to those made in England. Woodworking machinery was another matter. When in 1854, the Parliamentary Select Committee on Small Arms called Whitworth to testify about American manufacturing, one member asked him specifically about woodworking. Altogether in America, you were more struck with the mode of working the wood than their mode of working the iron. Whitworth replied, much more, they are not equal to us in the working of iron. Visiting many of the same American establishments Whitworth had toured, John Anderson, British Ordnance Inspector of Machinery, was equally impressed with American woodworking skill. Anderson included lengthy descriptions of woodworking machines and their operations in his report of the Committee on the Machinery of the United States of America. Americans could pride themselves on the knowledge that Anderson's committee had decided American gun stocking machinery was indispensable for its new small arms plant at Einfeld. I'm sorry, Enfield. Not only did the committee buy a complete battery of gun stocking machinery, hired an American mechanic to set up and manage it in England. Once in operation, Anderson told his countrymen that the woodworking skill and machinery above all American skills in England was a positive addition to the mechanical resources of the country. Uh, so woodworking, Adam said, is... Uh, Probably one of the oldest industries in America, if not technically the oldest. Uh, Adam mentioned um, the early colonial experience with timber and woodworking. Uh, and it was actually probably one of our first exports. Uh, it was one of the few areas where we were allowed, even as colonial subjects, to export somewhat more freely. Um, to Britain, around the world, to other colonies. Uh, this was uh, you know, not only the, the raw material, but we could manufacture finished products. We could sell them. So the American history of you know, made in America woodworking, it's over 400 years old. So there's a lot of power there. People have been you know, wanting this for years. To, uh, to give an anecdote, to give people a perspective on the difference in just the sheer quantity of timber available in the new world versus the old world. If you've ever traveled to Europe or at least seen pictures of maybe like the Scottish Highlands or something like that, uh, the UK in general, you'll notice a lot of their uh, pasture land is divvied up with rock walls and that has a lot to do with the fact that they just don't have the timber available to make the type of fences that became very common in the new world, in the English colonies in particular, whereby the farmers would literally cut down entire trees, use their trunks laid on t one on top of each other to create these ridiculous barricades to fence in livestock. And Europeans who would visit the English colonies would, on one hand, marvel at this, but on the other hand, they would 
they would just be dumbfounded by how wasteful it was compared to how they would have to treat their their resources. Now, as the forests were cut down, this was no longer possible at a certain point, and barbed wire, for example, became a, a huge innovation because it didn't require the amount of forest to be felled to simply uh, create a pasture and keep your, your cows from running away. But the uh, just the, the quantity available was uh, unheralded uh, for centuries of people, you know, just living in these very relatively populated areas. And today, if you talk about resource scarcity, I mean, you, you can go to India or China and see what it looks like when people run out of resources and they start living in high-density environments. It's not that fun. Uh, and I think one of the charming things about the United States and Canada and the New World was that it really was a, a frontier where an individual person could go out, stake a claim, which was actually government policy. Uh, acres of uh, land were given out to people for free if they would just go settle it. It's really a, a, an unprecedented concept in uh, most of human history. And it still is possible to a degree, but as we've become more urbanized, we've started to have the same problems that I believe it was Thomas Jefferson who compared the American uh, yeoman farmer to the uh, European urbanite and uh, prefer the, the former, uh, and said, once we urbanize, we will have all the same political and corruption issues that the Europeans have. And so one of the reasons I've always liked the kind of culture and spirit around the, the logging town was that it really was kind of a reminder of the, the roots of America and the, the frontier culture that was possible um, up until maybe recently. It, it's uh, it's fascinating to think about it in a, in a wider sense of history. Uh, end of the Ice Age, North America, the Americas are uh, permanently locked away by land travel. Uh, they're lost to the rest of the world, let's say. Uh, and you have to cross these vast oceans to find any of it. You have these ancient, truly ancient forests that uh, sprung up after the glaciers receded uh, that had been worked on and utilized to an extent by uh, various waves of Amerindians, but not quite so much. They never really figured out how to exploit them. They never really figured out what to do with them. They never really ever learned how to manage them. And well, they would often burn the forests. Yes, they, they would wanton destroy <laughs> as, and burn as, them for... As their for, ridiculously primitive um, yes. agricultural practices dictated in order to corral uh, the few game animals that they couldn't get to, they would just simply burn the forest and correct yeah scare so them out there's this ancient vast landscape of untouched wilderness and uh, the descendants of a uh, uh, very meager and poor tribe who locked away on an island in northern Europe uh, reach it after 
10,000, over 10,000 years of the two landmasses being separated by an immense ocean. And they discover wildernesses like they've never seen, that their forefathers never saw. No one had seen for many generations anything like that in Europe or anywhere else. They followed the same pattern to what Adam said uh, to an extent. So this is actually from a different book, and it's a book we've done a whole show on. It was uh, The Visible Hand by Mr. Alfred Chandler, and uh, he has a passage in here. Uh, uh, and this is speaking on the very, very early United States, colonial America. Uh, other industries were rural in nature and often tied closely to farming. Lumbering and potash making remained primarily part of the process of land clearing. Farmers became lumbermen in the winter, providing wood for fuel and lumber for the growing seaports and for the West Indies trade. Trapping, too, provided additional cash crop for the frontier farmers. However, until the expansion of John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company, large-scale fur trading in the U.S. was dominated by the British in Canada. Um, and he goes on to talk about how uh, very, very early on, uh, we were finding immense use of all this wood in agricultural practices, in furniture, building homes, building nascent infrastructure, bridges, uh, strengthening dirt roads. Uh, we were using it to make very powerful ships that we could sail through rivers, through bays, across the ocean and back. Uh, and so in many ways, uh, the vast wood of America and the, the newcomers, the colonial Americans who using their, their, uh, their immense skill and planning and, and resource management realized that uh, we can utilize this wood not only to clear the land can clear the land, we can, you know, create pasture land for our livestock, we can create farms. More importantly, we can use that wood to expand, we can expand and improve our quality of life, we can build out our infrastructure, we can effectively use that wood to make it easier to go acquire more wood and put you put that wood to use. Well, for and example, the, same, the, uh, the railroads that were developed, yes. um, Again, I, most of my research has been on the Pacific Northwest, but the railroad networks that were constructed throughout the forest there were effectively to pull trees out. Um, and once that was possible with the the locomotive pulling a, a long train of uh, of timbers, you really did have something. But prior to that, you know, you're going over very rugged terrain with horses, and they had to rely upon river systems effectively to float these things down to to uh, sawmills and ports, and it was much slower. But to get to the regions which didn't have rivers, and was uh, was quite impassable. Otherwise, uh, <clears throat> they effectively built railroads just for timber timber collection. And construction of uh, railroads obviously uh, requires uh, rails, which are iron and steel, um, <clears throat> steel later, iron initially, uh, which would do terribly after a, not too long of a service life, and then they would bend and warp. And so that's one of the reasons why steel became such an important American industry. But uh, underneath those are the ties, and those are the very heavy, effectively timbers. They're just cut into these gigantic pieces of lumber that uh, could... Uh, 
almost uh, make up a whole tree trunk, but they're cut into these uh, sort of like cubic looking sticks. I'm sure everybody's seen them, but they're then they're heavily treated with a creosote. And then they, uh, they form the bedrock of the, uh, underneath the rail that then sits on gravel. And, uh, it, it became a very, very important part of, uh, the railroad industry. Yes. Um, and something you noticed early on in, uh, in the sort of American experiment with, uh, wood, not, not woodworking, but, uh, the lumber industry, logging, timber manufacturing, you know, timber exports, all of it, you know, natural resource management, let's call it. Very early on, there are multiple accounts of uh, early sort of uh, research into the various types of trees that grew, how they grew. There were, you know, even in the 17th century, they were performing documented studies. <laughs> on the rate of growth, how they grew, root size, root depth, bark type, how to re, you know, how to take this tree and grow a new tree out of it somewhere else. And, uh, you know, what kind of soil conditions it worked best with. And there was a real understanding early on that, well, this is a, this is a renewable resource. They understood that very well. And we would, this is fantastic wood. We should make sure that we have enough regrowth, that we, we can constantly replenish our supply. Uh, and it's actually very strategic to have certain forests or certain trees, certain places. You know, trees alter their local ecology in, in many beneficial ways to provide good structure to soil. They, um, they can act as a natural uh, sort of uh, barrier to, you know, outsiders or weather events. There's all there's hundred uses for trees other than their wood. Well, this was recognized in Europe because of the resource constraints that came on very right. quickly. I mean, even in uh, medieval uh, times, that this was an apparent problem that if they continued to cut without either replanting, which I don't think was very uh, sophisticated back then, or simply allowing a few trees to live so that they could reseed on their own, this was, this was a paramount issue. In, uh, in England, for example, where the king actually had a designated uh, arborist responsible for managing all his lands. But in America, uh, I'm not aware of too much of this until maybe uh, Teddy Roosevelt's time when uh, just the experience of having such overwhelming quantity of natural resources, they didn't quite manage it too well, in my opinion, until uh, you know 150 years after the uh, colonization. So what went where and, and who and, and when was this in particular in America happening? Well, this is happening all over. Uh, so this this would have been happening as early as the uh, the primary Virginia colony. So uh, I'm sorry, Virginia Company, so starting with Jamestown, uh, which became the Virginia colony. Uh, there were a couple key regions in which logging was very predominant early on. Uh, historically, the eastern United States, uh, the eastern seaboard, let's call it, uh, very wooded area. 
on the downslopes of the Appalachian Mountains and a couple of the mountain ranges, you have so much fresh flowing water, so much so many silt deposits. You have these, this perfect soil that was you know, like handcrafted by God with <laughs> incredible glacier movements. And it's like, perfectly ideal for growing massive trees. So when the colonial Americans arrived and they started to expand, or, I'm sorry, the colonial English became colonial Americans. They, I'm just going to call them the colonial Americans. And the colonial Americans arrived and started to expand. Uh, they had all this old growth forest. It was not uncommon to find huge forests full of trees that had to be hundreds of years old. This is actually immensely common. Um, this is common in the South, particularly in North Carolina. This is common in Virginia. Uh, this is very, very common in what's now New York, uh, somewhat common in places like Connecticut, uh, and actually really common all over New England, and uh, including the territory that would become Maine. And while some of these areas they couldn't directly access, they couldn't directly control them for political reasons or for uh, possible threats from the Amerindians or so forth, or you know, the British did not have direct control over them, there were still people going there to try and exploit these resources or at least understand them. Uh, so particularly the territory that would become Maine, North Carolina, Virginia, New York, uh, parts of New England were the – early experiments in logging, let's say. Uh, so you would have these, a mix of small towns and uh, sort of individual outfits that would either go logging or you had a small town or a, you know, that was sometimes temp set up temporarily. It wasn't necessarily uh, a company town, uh, in, in the sense that you would later find in like the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, where you have like a hundred company towns and they're all about logging. Uh, many of those towns remain today. Uh, it was a different structure then. And people, uh, there's a bit more of a communitarian aspect and people would say, okay, well, you know, we need, uh, in order to fulfill certain requirements in order to build ships, in order to build houses, People need to uh, receive wood. We have all this immense wood 50 miles outside of here. Uh, but this is in the era of horses and carriages and wagons still. So, you know, you can't just drive a truck out there. You can't easily move it back. Uh, you can't bring heavy equipment out there easily and then bring it back. Uh, uh, you have to, you know, the equipment was diminutive. Relative to today, you know, it's a lot of hand saws, hand tools, um, some horse-drawn tools, some tools that could be drawn with oxen. There, there were there were some early mechanized tools, let's say, with the animal power, uh, or just you know, lots of raw manpower that could be utilized to take down some of this these old growth trees, and they would set up little towns or areas or like little kind of temporary villages and it would be right near a nice clearing and around the clearing you would have lots of old growth trees and there was plenty of space they would find a good spot where there's plenty of space to actually perform the felling of the trees or they could perform further work they could actually perform the, the, the general logging work of turning these into logs 
um, trying to saw them into planks, trying to saw them into whatever shapes they needed. Uh, and then they'd have a kind of proto supply chain moving back towards cities or areas where people could then work on them more. There were shipyards, there were early lumber yards, there were early, uh, like I mentioned, woodworkers in the United States. Uh, and then this would distribute. This would distribute to shop owners, to uh, depots. This would distribute to individual woodworkers or carpenters. Uh, they'd always have their own tray. They were making anything from wagons or furniture or, uh, or specialized items for housing or floorboards or anything like that. Uh, you also had early experimentation in, in wood-based products. Um, you know, trying to extract chemical from wood, trying to extract liquid from wood, trying to turn into mulch, trying to use sawdust for anything you could, wood dust. People were trying to use it for anything. Also, you have to remember that there's a massive consumption of wood at this time for 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 power. You know, wood was effectively how you transferred energy. If you needed to heat something up, if you needed to perform you know, to very technical or advanced metalworking. Um, if you needed to light a fire to cook food, if you needed to light a fire to uh, eat up oil for something or tar for something. Well, it, it is oil. one of the most accessible and renewable uh, sources right. of heat. Uh, in terms of metallurgy, uh, coal uh, is probably a better uh, primary energy source uh, because with um, with wood you have to turn it into charcoal first, which is kind yes, of an yeah. ard arduous process, and then it's uh, it's sort of I, I don't know the, uh, the 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 temperatures off the top of my head, but my impression is that when you take coal and you turn it into coke, uh, you you get a higher temperature and and probably a higher energy density at the very least uh, because it's been compressed and. Uh, had time to effectively decompose and and work off a lot of those uh, unuseful elements that uh, is really why you go through the whole charcoaling process to begin with with wood because you're trying to get it down to its um, elements that are going to generate the most heat but in any case uh, it's super accessible and that's what's great about it but it's bulky takes a lot of time to process uh, if anybody's cut firewood you know how much time that takes and uh, and then you have to season it and all that stuff. So uh, what's great about it, though, is it, it's just it's everywhere and it comes back. And I think that's what's so magical about wood. Yes. Um, so you have you know early on like an entire supply chain and way of life forming around wood. And like I said, New England, including the territory of Maine or that would become Maine, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, New York were primary sources of uh, of wood. You know, in Virginia, you had um, oak, cedar, uh, sassafras were the primary ones. Um, I believe in North Carolina, you had a lot of pine that was incredibly useful. There's a lot of pine that was turned into tar and timber. And, um, uh yeah, turp, turpentine okay. actually is uh, derived from, I think, pine trees. Right. And I, I think it has a southern connection, if I'm not mistaken. But there there are a lot of pine trees in the southeastern parts of the United States, which uh, 
always struck me as strange because I always associated pine forests with uh, snow and there's not too, too much of that down in Florida, but they do have pine trees. I've, I've actually seen them myself. Yeah. So you had, uh, this industry growing for several decades, uh, the rapid expansion of, of the English across America and, you know, becoming the early Americans in many ways. And as they expanded, like I said, there was this cycle where they would need the land to be cleared for pasture, for farming. But that was not just their only concern. Uh, the early you know, colonial Americans uh, really were folk had much bigger ambitions. Uh, you have to kind of rewind to early 17th century England, which is already becoming uh, a early, uh, yeah, an early industrial power in some right, and already has vast experience with you know, sort of the proto-industrial manners, uh, has immense agricultural industries, metalworking industries, even then even 250 years prior to that passage I read. So these were people who already had a great deal of skill and knowledge of engineering, resource planning, and so forth. Um, there was also an effort at the time to get these resources back to England on top of that. England was becoming a power within Europe and ambitions of much more. It needed wood. It needed these log, these proto-logging villages, let's call them, uh, to deliver that. Now, there were problems, you know, uh, during through much of the 17th century, actually, New England and England, although parts of the colonial America had a better relationship with England than New England did, ironically. Um, so there was not too much wood going back or timber going back. But on any level, the colonial Americans wanted their own ships. They wanted their own infrastructure. They wanted to build cities, houses. They wanted to have all of the amenities of life that they had in England and more because this is a vast tract of new land you could build anything on. Uh, in order to accomplish that eventually – we had the sort of the introduction of uh, of the sawmill. So the the very very early sawmills were uh, probably not like anything you would see today. Um, Adam might know. Uh, there, there's a there's a particular kind of mill now uh, that are much smaller. There are, there's a lot of them over like the Pacific Northwest and, and the Western United States in general, where it's um, it's like it's basically just it's it's a one machine mill um, where it, it just takes log after log and it, it's sort of a refined process for just making basic planks. I can't remember what type of machine that is. It's not like some of the ma bigger ones where you know it, it's a lot of these ones where it's just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You're not, you're not like, talking about Alaskan mills, are you? I mean that that's that's effectively a chainsaw, um, but. The, uh, the the actual sawmills, I mean, they have gigantic uh, sort of like a skill saw blade, but scaled up about uh, 50 times. And then they they rolled these logs over conveyor belts and then the, the, the various saws uh, carve off the rounded sections. And they get these 
um, rectangular centers, and then they divide those up however they want. But that's the traditional saw that I'm familiar with. And going back in time, I imagine they just used uh, you know water power and then maybe steam at a certain point to power the uh, the rotary action of those big big blades. Um, I mean, there's also band saws, you know, these are sort of uh, middle tier things that some people own, uh, on their homesteads that you can kind of run, which are effectively, um, like a chainsaw, but it's, it's not a chain. It's a, it's a band of sheet metal and those can also carve up, um, on these, uh, you know, you put the log down on these rollers and then you kind of push it through and then the, the band cuts on a flat, flat plane, um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what uh, you're thinking of. If there's a name I missed there, I can't think of it right now. Maybe it'll come to me in a minute, or I'll find it later and put it uh, put it in in the the show notes. Um, but at any level, uh, we had this rapid expansion of sawmills, and so New England and Maine really is where the sawmill industry takes off. Now, in in order to construct uh, a a water driven sawmill in 17th century America, where the supply chains back to Europe are tenuous at best, if not you know uh, actually very difficult and uh, expensive to utilize, you have to find a way with your skills to rebuild all of the, you know, nascent infrastructure you had back in England or back in Europe, uh, for a new sort of water wheel for a new mill. Uh, and in order to do that, you would need quite a lot of wood. So, and, and so some level of metallurgy as well to accomplish this, sometimes stone masonry or stone working was also required. And so you had the early days of, of the lumber industry in America, where it was all done exclusively by hand. Then, uh, starting in the 1620s, 1630s, you have the rise of your first sawmill towns, your first, and you know, you're also your first logging towns. Really, you have uh, towns that exclusively revolve around um, delivering a you know a tree back to the city, uh, or back to an area where it can be worked on for uh, for final product. Um, and so I believe the first one was in Maine in, uh, 1633. And this was a water driven mill. It, uh, you know, this is basically two over 200 years before the first steam powered mills come into effect. So there's an, an immense length of time in which, you know, the, uh, even up, up to, and after the revolution, you know, Americans are still using this kind of uh, technology to mill wood. Uh, maybe improves a little bit here or there, but it doesn't make any major leaps and bounds for 200 years. Uh, so these, uh, to my knowledge, would have been basically up and down sawmills. And uh, it's just, it's like one or more of these like straight saw blades and they stretch into tension and they just kind of move back and forth and just a water wheel pulling them and pulling them and pulling them around. And eventually you're able to kind of cut through the wood. You have men pushing it and it's this very difficult process. It requires a lot of coordination. Not a lot of it's even that technical. Uh, you're doing a lot of it by eye. Uh, you don't have 
too much of a precise measurement. You're really hoping that you do a decent enough job where you can get it back to Boston or to Charleston or one of these cities where you have experienced woodworkers with precise tools and measurements that can actually figure out what to do with this and see what they can make out of it. Uh, your job is to, you know, deliver it in some fashion, or at least go get it for them and, and find a way to, to bring it back in, in an easy way. Um, so at one point you had, uh, I want to say in six, uh, in like 16, the late 1630s, early 1640s, um, you had, I don't know, a couple dozen sawmills, by 1840, New England had 5,500 sawmills. So that includes uh, what Maine? I mean, were, were these even uh, yeah, geographically so defined as we would call them today? But effectively, yeah, generally it's they were they were geographically Maine defined. down through the, what? It's one of the funny uh, things New York, about New England. Is how, that, how far does that go? Yeah, so New England classically is. Uh, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Uh, the borders of, of uh, the New England territories and the New England colonies actually haven't shifted as much um, from what they were originally intended as. Rhode Island, not really. Connecticut, not really. Uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, not really. Maine, not too much. Um, New York, historically... It's not included in New England as a as a regional identity. Although I think a lot of people in the upstate I, uh, identify much more with that sort of uh, um, cultural attitude, and and certainly historically similar industries. New York, as a state, had thousands of sawmills on its own in the nineteen by the nineteenth century. Uh, New York was producing massive amounts of timber and it had a huge woodworking industry all over the state so what you eventually started seeing in the eastern united states was as the, because the population was so concentrated uh it, you didn't have these far-flung towns that just kind of revolved around one thing you had towns that became more it was easier to get to them and you could build a, a town and then more industries around the mill or around the logging. So in some cases, you even had experienced carpenters or woodworkers who were making furniture, who were making all sorts of things, uh, not far at all from where the logging was going on or where the milling was going on. So you have kind of the early uh, kind of vertically integrated industrial town or industrial city in, in the United States states on the east coast uh, so as the u.s starts to expand uh, we have like three primary uses for uh like i said earlier for a lot of this wood housing export ships fourth one later on uh would be guns this is always a <laughs> a, a very very american uh industry export market and uh all around pastime but early on it was the ships exporting it raw and housing 
something that was very, very important about the early United States, uh, colonial America in the early United States, is that housing war was uh, a very different social phenomena from that of England and that of Europe in general. Again, not as cramped, not as many people, property much more available to uh, to come by, to come into, to utilize. Uh, the American obsession with housing, I think it's criticized by, you know, deranged third rollers that move here or whatever. But uh, it's been an expectation in American culture that you'd have a house. Everyone wants a house. They want something like that. Part of how we were able to accomplish that, other than having bath swaths of as of yet unclaimed territory, was that we had entire old growth forests from the end of the last ice age that we could exploit for that. We could make everyone a house three times over, and we wouldn't even deplete all of the trees in a single state. It was that simple. So this became a huge part of life for many people was construction work, building houses, building ways to get to houses, building out people's properties, doing early landscaping with wood. And so suddenly you have a sort of the idyllic, picturesque, um, American village or the American town or the little American house uh, on the edge of the forest or on the prairie and uh, it has the nice garden, it has the good uh, you know, landscaping, it has interesting structure, it has nice fencing all along the dirt road and it has ties or it has wood on, you know, underneath parts of the dirt road to stabilize it. And you know, this becomes like quintessentially Americans because we have all this massive amount of wood. We cleared all that land to make way for these great farms and villages and places of gathering. You put all that work to use and suddenly have this just kind of great structure around all of it. So those logging towns in, like I said, North Carolina, Virginia, New England, New York were hugely important in that. Now, a lot of the people that lived there, um, I guess, you know, in a way you could call them like the early lumberjack. Uh, the lumberjack uh, is one of the, I would describe it as like one of the primary um, archetypes of an American along with the cowboy. Uh, well, Paul Bunyan. The business. Yes, uh, Paul Bunyan. Um, but there's, there's a couple of these like archetypes of the American, right? There's the cowboy. Um, the revolutionary Minuteman, uh, the you know the pinstripe business pinstripe suit businessman, uh, and the lumberjack is another is another one. Uh, so you had the early origins of the lumberjacks here. You had men and groups of men, whole companies effectively. These are sort of early companies that specialized strictly in um, in going and felling forests, delivering that wood to mills, delivering that wood back to towns. Uh, and these were, you know, all the descriptions of them, these are very rough guys. They uh, have to live a certain way. They don't have the amenities of 19th century or 20th century Americans. They don't have power tools. They don't have hot coffee. <laughs> they don't have um, indoor heating, they don't have any of it. So these guys were would go out, they would build their own little structures nearby, they would kind of set up a, a shanty camp of some sort, and they'd bring 
all the tools and equipment they needed with them on wagons, on horseback, and they would set up, and this was their job, was to fell a forest, was to clear a spot of land uh, and, and figure out what to do with it, how to bring it back. Uh, in parts of North Carolina, you had guys venturing very, very deep, 100, 200 miles deep into the North Carolina wilderness. And their job was to find ways or find trees that they thought were appropriate to cut down. So there's you know, it's kind of an early science to this. And uh, a lot of it revolved around how many trees are around this specific tree. And if we cut this tree down, how do we get it out of here? You know, can we get it on the river? Can we move it out by land? You know, what, how can we do this? Uh, do we try and piece it up here? Do we try and take it back in bigger chunks to the mill? Uh, so these guys specialized in that. So the early lumberjack really comes from this era of men figuring out how to do basic forestry. Uh, so they, um, so for a, a time, uh, New England and, but eventually, um, as we all know, the American people expanded into the Midwest, uh, now, in, in a lot of the American Midwest, there had already been two groups that had uh, uh, undergone a fair amount of lumbering themselves and had uh, explored this industry. Uh, number one were the French, number two were the British. And the French had more success parts of the Midwest than, than, the, uh, than the British did, certainly as a result of the revolution um, and, you know, lots of hostilities with American privateers, uh, lots of uh, sort of guerrilla action against groups like the Hudson's Bay Company. The British were finding it very difficult to move into the parts of the Midwest, uh, make a claim, make a stake to it, and then start to exploit its resources, which is why they became uh, far more focused up in uh, the Dominion of Canada, which was, was known at the time. Um, so the territory that would become Michigan was particularly, uh, favored by the French. Um, they, there, there's lots of old growth in Michigan that was you know, a lot of like white pines and, um, they were utilized a lot for fort building, um, generally building out what I would call like the French fur trading infrastructure. So the French uh, and the Americans too, but the French were obsessed with this uh, supply chain around getting furs out of the Midwest. On some level, this is what drove the French economy in the New World uh, more so than anyone else. They, they, this, this was this was their 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 racket was the fur trade, and they needed to build massive amounts of infrastructure. Okay, they needed to build fur trading depot centers and posts. They needed to build forts. They needed to build, you know, uh, fencing. They needed to build barriers. They needed to, you know, strengthen pathways and, and early roads. And they needed to build ships and bridges and, and you know, sort of like proto-canals. They needed to be able to redirect water. And it, 
it was you know immense all the work that they were trying to do and it's it's kind of funny in hindsight that it all just gets like you know washed and burned out when you know, as the americans expand in just they get rid of this stuff but the french had been exploiting this for some time um and there's a lot of hardwoods in michigan that were very very useful for um merchant and warships and this is true across much of the upper midwest um so in order to turn this area into the pristine pasture land it is today we needed to clear a lot of this forest and then uh, in doing so we could also strengthen much of our uh of our fleet which would come in incredibly useful in the 19th century as the united states tried to become more of an atlantic facing power I uh, wanted to have export interests, and at the time, that meant you had to put stuff on your own ships and then sail it somewhere, uh, and need to be able to defend yourself, and need to be able to take ships up and down rivers, and complex process. So uh, the the conquering of Michigan, in the exploitation of Michigan, and a lot of the the lumber industry there, the the logging towns there, the you know the real kind of beginnings of the lumberjack ethos in the 19th century. It was a huge part of the American growth. Um, there's no, absolutely no way we could have grown the way we did if a lot of that hardwood, those white pines, a lot of those old growth forests had not been there for us uh, in Michigan. Um, and so uh, much of it by the time the Americans got there was actually already uh, – effectively ruined or timbered um the french had done a number and when we arrived you know as adam pointed out earlier it turns out the amerindians had had done quite a number on the old growth um they had been ruining it with fire uh for quite a long time and, and not trying to regrow it or replant it or utilize it for anything else uh so a lot of the a lot of the specific people that moved into the Midwest, not just Michigan, um, there was a huge migration from New York and Upper New England. Those people are the ones who primarily settled uh, much of those parts of the Midwest. Uh, so there's like a general uh, Yankee settlement going on, and one of the first things they want to do is get this lumber for the reasons I already stated. Um, when they moved into northern Michigan and other parts of the, of the upper Midwest, uh, they found that there were a great number of, of river systems. Um, one of the easiest ways, and you'll see this a lot in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska too, uh, to move lumber around is through river systems. Today, it's not even that more complex than it was maybe 150 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, you have iron chains or you have you know metal chains that you utilize to hook and bundle together lots of these logs of wood. You don't even generally debark them first. You don't strip them. You don't do anything to them. You just cut them down. You cut off their branches. You bundle them together. And you have men who generally are on ships that in, who are training to go and bundle this wood, to go and utilize it, um, and they move it downriver. 
they move it to various depot locations, they move it to various uh, lake ports, where it is then sometimes milled. Uh, generally, a lot of our sawmill infrastructure, uh, and this is true for most of our industrial infrastructure, and I think Adam can back me up here, uh, would be located along rivers because for a long time, this was the most convenient way to move product around. If you want to move a piece of raw material or a partially finished product to someone else to finish it, uh, there was no trucking in industry. You couldn't put it on the back of an 18-wheeler, um, and you couldn't reliably put it on the back of a train. Uh, it was not as easy. It was how would you even get it to the train was often the uh, the problem. You'd have to build your own railway, and you'd have to sync up to the main line. And this, you know, this is like a nightmare for uh, for an engineer. Yeah, so I don't, I don't have the numbers in down. front of me, but in just in terms of intu- intuition here. The energy efficiency of transportation along a waterway versus road, rail, or air, obviously, uh, is going to be very efficient. Uh, you you don't have to contend with um, the river can carry you. For example, if you're going down, um, I'm just trying to go through the intuition of why this is the case. Uh, if you're going upriver, uh, one of the advantages I think of water is that you, assuming you don't have cataracts or waterfalls, obviously, but uh, waterways are very flat. And so when you're driving, uh, even a, a locomotive, uh, obviously they have to try to keep those grades as, as flat as possible. But when you're, you're driving a car, for example, if you go up a hill, uh, there's a lot of wasted um, distance you have to travel because if you went in a straight line, you'd effectively tunnel through these obstructions, which are known as uh, hills. <laughs> but with, with water, because it's been working its way down the, uh, the grade for centuries, thousands of years, millennia, who knows, uh, it's flattened out for you. So it's, it's, it's like kind of a straight line. And, and yeah, sure, you have, to, you have to go back and forth to the left and the right and tack, uh, I suppose is the term, but there's no up and down. And so when, when you have to go up, you're effectively lifting something. And if you have a steady uh, grade that goes up, if you're going up a river, you don't have an, any wasted energy of having to go up the hill, then down the hill, up the hill, down the hill. So super energy efficient. And obviously it's cleared for you. You don't have to plow through uh, a forest or a hillside or uh, there's uh, usually also <laughs> no, no politics on the river, uh, r- relatively speaking, because there's no settlements on it. Uh, so compared to uh, today when, uh, you can maybe go through a town hall meeting and, and decades, if not more of, of arguing to get a one mile, uh, interchange put in somewhere back in the day, um, you didn't have that, but you, you did have, uh, a lot of natural obstructions. And so the waterways are great because they're, they're already cleared for you. Uh, they're typically uh, neutral territory, traditionally, culturally, historically. And so it, it makes perfect sense to locate anything that requires uh, transportation of anything that's heavy. And to this day, um, I think the uh, the Mississippi River, uh, the Great Lakes still serve as tremendously vital arteries for transportation of uh, large quantities of raw materials, especially agricultural products uh, in the United States. Yes. So, upper Midwest, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, even down into kind of the 
area just above the Great Prairies, uh, Missouri in particular, they're all contributing massive amounts of lumber for the United States. And like I said, Michigan specifically plays this huge kind of unsung role. Now, uh, at one point, uh, Michigan actually became the leading lumber producing state in the country for, uh, I want to say from like the 1860s until the turn of the 20th century, it was the primary uh, producer of lumber products. It, it makes sense. It, it's heavily yeah. forested, especially the Upper Peninsula, and, and, and the uh, Great Lakes effectively uh, surround it. And so yes, it, yeah. it's just a perfect place to get, it, it's get not, lumber. And it's, like, it's not only perfect like because of that, because it had so much and it had just the right kinds of wood you needed for every occasion, um, for merchant marining, um, sorry, for merchant and, and, uh, and, and war marine ships, you had lumber you could turn into furniture, housing, railroad ties. You could do anything with this. You could do anything with it. You could even make medical tonics out of some, <laughs> some of these products. Um, and it's, like I said earlier, I, I'm a proud consumer of uh, tree-derived medicine. I'm a big believer in... Natural white remedies. pine tea, white white pine tea, which is, uh, I have been told by a fan of the show, one of our biggest fans, uh, is a cure all. This man drinks it every day and is one of the healthiest people I know. So, white pine tea, <laughs> one of the great American products. Uh, on some level, though, like I said. Michigan is perfect because we have all these crisscrossing river networks. So you can move stuff around so easily. Now, you have the kind of urbanization, industrialization of the United States starting in the late 1860s, early 1870s. Um, and with industrialization, with urbanization, you need lots of wood. So if you're not only going to pull from Michigan, you have to pull from elsewhere. There was actually an interesting reverse migration from the north to the south after the ad, after the aftermath of the Civil War um, for a couple of reasons. There were uh, northern businessmen who were looking to expand some of their sort of early industrial business interests into the south, which has been a, a tale that, that's still being told to this day. It's 150 years in the making of looking for cheaper labor, people who are skilled, smart, but they're cheap, and where land is easy to, uh, to come by. But one of the other primary interests was South has immense forests, all kinds of trees. Uh, and so North Carolina, which had a kind of fallen by the wayside, as a as a wood producing state uh, was being re-explored in the 1870s, 1880s, mostly by northerners who were funding this because they knew that they needed that wood to sort of build the national infrastructure, build the national industrial system. Um, also around this time, uh, going back to the Hounshell book on the American production systems, uh, you have really, really high-quality finished products 
being made domestically in the United States and then being sold to other people in the United States and being used by people in the United States. Uh, everything from the early Singer uh, sewing machine stations to some of the finest wood furniture you'll probably ever see in your life to some of the most immaculate manors and houses. Uh, it's all being done here. So a lot of this wood was coming from the South, actually, and it was still coming from the upper Midwest. Uh, and this is as uh, New England and um, the Eastern Seaboard generally is focusing much more on industry. There's lots of labor-saving uh, and time-saving method, you know, advances in sawmilling technology, in uh, timber felling and timber making technology. Uh, but you only have so many people to go around, so you have to kind of focus on something. Uh, the New England states and the Eastern Seaboard generally focused on urbanizing itself and industrial output. That leaves a lot less people to go and perform natural resource extraction uh, or agriculture. So this is why you have the natural utilization of the upper Midwest for a mix of agriculture, lumber, and mining. You have the Great Prairies being used almost exclusively for agriculture and pasture land. Um, and you have the South being used for a mix of those. Uh, and then the gradual utilization of the Western states for mining and lumber. Uh, so the kind of the, the growth of logging towns across the United States in the 19th century is part of a wider strategy of let's focus our uh, industrial interests in the eastern seaboard and let's focus those people on those tasks specifically and everyone else will kind of in some way contribute to the raw resource you know extraction or the agricultural output they can fuel that and as we expand, we will slowly you know, take the lessons we've learned in industrializing and urbanizing the East Coast, and we'll slowly move that West. So by the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century, that process has taken hold in Michigan, taken hold in Minnesota, it's taking hold in the Midwest broadly, Ohio, parts of Kentucky, so forth. This is the general pattern. Uh, how I view the, the growth of logging towns, the sawmill towns of America, the original in, uh, way it seemed to play out was that uh, this was your first pathway to becoming a, an industrial city or town, or at least a town with some you know commercial output or internal commercial um, processes. This is how it played out in New England. This is how it played out in the South before the Civil War. Uh, this is how it played out in the Midwest. What, what's interesting is that this does not end up happening as much to an extent in the Pacific Northwest. It does not happen in the West as much in general. Um, the, the Western United States, as the logging towns expand and as this becomes and in the new area where we are going to get a lot of these raw materials, um, and I'm talking Oregon, Idaho, 
Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Washington, parts of Northern California, uh, parts of Arizona even. Uh, I think people think Arizona's like a giant desert. That's not... <laughs> no, that's no uh, go, to, go to Flagstaff. <laughs> it's basically in the uh, in the Rocky Mountain yeah. Range. Uh, yeah. So is New Mexico yeah. actually too. And if you drive through that part of those states, uh, you see there's, again, those, uh, those conifer forests, which survive because yes, it, it is a relatively arid place, but if you're at a high altitude, uh, you have sufficient snowpack built up during the winter that melts that can sustain those trees. And uh-huh. if you're lower down, you don't get any of that snow. And then you, you get these, uh, they call them like washes. They, they have these torrents of rain, but it all just disappears. So it doesn't go into, um, in, into the vegetation as well. Right. Um, so as we're expanding into the West, I actually forgot to go a little bit into Minnesota. Uh, it's interesting because Minnesota actually uh, plays a, a, an, a huge role in our logging town, sawmill town experience in the United States. Um, and a lot of the lessons that are really learned in Minnesota uh, play a large role in how we decide to manage the growth of logging towns in the Pacific Northwest or the Western United States, the mountain states, Pacific Northwest, whatever you want to call that, everywhere west of the Rockies, let's say. Uh, So Minnesota followed a similar path to Michigan, followed a similar path to Missouri, followed a similar path to other states uh, in that we had a, a boom period uh, you know, this is an area that had been under the exploitation of uh, the British, the French. They were driven out, um, thankfully, and we kind of took over. And so by the 1850s, uh, this was a, a huge, huge industry for Minnesota. Uh, now, again, this is where the, uh, the lumberjack ethos really gets itself going. Um, there's some really fun, like they, they were meant for kids, although they were written in a very old era. There's a lot of like the American lumberjack or, um, there's another one, Mr. Lumberjack. Or, there's a couple of, of these sort of small stories and like little small histories. Um, you can sometimes still find them and they all take place in, in like Minnesota and, uh, and uh, it, it is the the beginnings of that classic look, the flannel, uh, the the headwear, the overalls, the the big brawly man with the axe, the beards, uh, the little beer halls afterwards. You know, these are Scandinavian immigrants. These are um, vestiges of uh, the uh, sort of Yankee Anglo's who are still moving west from uh, from New England and New York. Uh, quite a lot of Germans, and so they're kind of coming together, and they're making the, this state that's built around uh, at the time was built around clearing, clearing the land, clearing the great forests for uh, for something new. Today, we you know we think of Minnesota as a, uh, a farming state and an industrial state, but there was a time when it was just a big collection of of wildernesses with some rivers in between that uh, became very useful for clearing them. And a lot of lakes. And a lot of lakes, land of a thousand. Well, that's Finland, land of a thousand lakes. But uh, I think it's 10,000 10, lakes, I thought. 
Is it 10,000? It's a lot, but yeah. uh, it's very flat. So it sort of makes sense. Similar. Well, similar to, to Minnesota. If you've ever, fl- uh, if you've ever flown over Minnesota, I think all of us have on some level, uh, you, you can see like, dotted across the landscape, like little miniature lakes everywhere. And you'll just see like a little forest next to a lake. There'll be a stream and then a forest and a lake and then a stream and then a forest and then a clearing and then a lake and then, and then maybe another forest and then there's a stream or a river and just goes on and on and on like this. So imagine that, but on a much grander scale, 150 years ago, 100, 160 years ago. Uh, so the white pine trade, big part of Minnesota. Lots of other useful wood that was taken out of there. But Minnesota is also where we started to experiment with, you know, huge commercial sawmills and where we started to really, uh, and the Americans really started to specialize in the sawmill industry, more so than anyone in Europe certainly was at the so time. So my, my internet's really slow, but uh, yes, the promotion of Minnesota was land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, according to Wikipedia, Minnesota has 11,842 lakes of 10 acres or more. Uh, 1968 state survey found 15,291 lake basins, uh, of which 3,257 were dry. Wow. That is the, uh, those ice age glaciers just slowly receding and pulling back all the, (laughs) pulling back all the, uh, the terrain and, and letting lots of it, you know, kind of barrel out and then you fill it up with water and it just sits there forever. Um, so you have these commercial sawmills and by this time, okay, everyone's learned lessons from new England, right? Like, okay, we have all the equipment, um, by the 1860s, 1870s, they're now steam powered. So you have, you know, private business owners who specialize in setting up sawmills. Often they're owned by just one guy or, um, and they were not that difficult to invest. The, the capital expenditures were not that intense. So you could just start a sawmill. It was not that, not that difficult because business was going to be so great. You could start small. There was going to be a lot of revenue and you could grow rapidly. Um, you could just find a region that just didn't have a sawmill yet or only had one or two and you could become a sawmill owner. It was that it was that simple. But you also had large commercial ones and you had some semi-industrial ones. Now, the more advanced ones uh, were steam powered um, and Eventually, they would have um, uh, some kind of tie to the local commercial railroad. You were starting to see the beginnings of steam engines or improvements in steam engines. You get the bandsaw being invented. And you have a lot of these towns in Minnesota, Brainerd, Little Falls, Crookston, uh, Duluth. Uh, these towns are becoming sort of... Uh, sawmill meccas where not only are you you know learning how to 
build an effective sawmill. You have sort of the best metallurgy and you have some of the best mechanical and steam engineer, you know, hydraulics engineers coming together. You're learning how to most efficiently get from the forest, raw materials from the forest to the mill, deliver them somewhere with precise metrics, with, you know, precise measurements. Everything is to a T. It is a fully industrialized, uh, systematized process. And it's really in Minnesota where this becomes uh, the reality. Eventually, that knowledge percolates its way back into uh, the southern United States, places like Missouri, uh, the rest of the Midwest, and to an extent, uh, uh, New England. But it's really Minnesota where a lot of this is performed well, and it becomes the basis of how uh, sawmilling and logging was going to proceed further. Uh, you would hook into the sort of national transportation or infrastructure system. You would you know, sort of plot your your uh, your movements, your supply chain according to that, and you had the ability to to sort of everyone had learned how to best set up a sawmill at this point. This knowledge had percolated so much you could just go anywhere. Uh, so in like the turn of the century, when uh, Minnesota was like at its peak in terms of its uh, its logging capacity. Now, there's one statistic that lumberjacks were felling as much as two billion board feet annually, enough to circle the earth with an inch thick, 14 foot wide boardwalk. Um, but this didn't last. This peak. By the 1920s, Minnesota was done as a uh, super powerful sawmilling and logging state. It had exhausted its resources completely. But in the, in the time that it was at its most active, you had the greatest industrial expansion of all time, the 1880s to 1920s era of America, the, the, the Gilded Age, the industrial era. This was, you know, this was fueled by places like Minnesota. Yeah, and until China, but uh, yes. I think I, up until that yes. point, yes. <laughs> and so when this industry declined, there was two places left to go. New England is tapped out. No, it's not totally tapped out. The most easily accessible old growth is done for, or there's not enough people. And there's not enough cap. There's not enough uh, capital expenditures that can be made to turn this into a vital industry that could, you know, satisfy demand nationally or even regionally. New York is not producing nearly as much anymore. Uh, much of the, you know, parts of the South aren't even doing this anymore. So there's like two places left. There's the Deep South, the Interior South, um, and there's the Pacific Northwest. So again, you have this movement of people, movement of knowledge, uh, movement of culture further west. You know, so this started in 1620s, 1630s. By the 1930s, it's getting ready to move again. And this time it's moving to the far end of the, uh, of the continent and it's reached the Pacific Ocean. Uh, 
So Oregon and uh, Idaho are two of the uh, two of the primary states involved in this. Uh, now, before this decline in the Midwest and decline in parts of the South with these logging towns, sawmill towns, there had already been expansion into Oregon, into Idaho, into the Pacific Northwest, into Montana, and so forth. Uh, but this area was already kind of under active uh, competition, uh, going as far back as uh, uh, right after the War of 1812. You had, had um, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company and uh, a couple other <laughs> uh, uh, agents of the British Empire that were attempting to move into this area. I think uh, Boy. Boise in particular was an area where the Hudson's Bay Company attempted to set up shop. Uh, and they were driven out by uh, sort of the early American uh, settlers and bushmen and, and frontiersmen in like a, almost guerrilla war. Uh, and thanks to this and thanks to the British being driven out in our acquisition of these territories, we could exploit them starting as early as the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, so the the in Oregon and Washington, and so you know like the forests along the Oregon coast and the lower Columbia River, uh, they, they were already being expanded upon to help out with infrastructure for the California Gold Rush and for the the West Coast Gold Rush in general. Uh, people, I don't know, if people aren't familiar with the Gold Rush era, I don't think that they would realize how much infrastructure was built in uh, you had to build whole railroad systems you had to build whole towns some of these towns became uh, massive metropolises like uh, San Francisco uh, you had to build you know, like you know different parts of a supply chain you had to build houses you had to build lots of boats you had to build lots of uh, wooden equipment for for the actual gold processing, for the water processing. Uh, at this point, you know, we're also in the United States, we're experimenting with um, lots of, you know, sort of quick and easy canal systems or or, uh, or dam systems. We're using wood at the time to accomplish that. So at this point, we're trying to do a lot of earth moving or, or water moving, water moving. Uh, so Oregon and Washington and parts of Idaho are already being tapped by this point for their wood resources. And uh, it, Washington State effectively become, takes over as the leading wood producer, wood products producer in the United States in 1910. Uh, so after the peak had died down in, 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 uh, in the Midwest, now it's the Pacific Northwest that is the, the leader. And um, Oregon becomes the primary leader in 1938, and I believe Oregon still holds that position as the number one exporter or producer of wood products in the U.S. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain it is still Oregon. Well, this, if, if anybody's ever driven through there, it's uh, it's just got the perfect climate for growing timber. 
Um, I've actually read some of the, uh, the really old school forestry papers on studying, uh, tree growth. And this gets to how do you manage and maximize the yields uh, per acre. Um, but one of the striking things that I noticed was that, uh, the rate at which those trees grow is much higher than that of, uh, the surrounding states. And, uh, a lot of that has to do with just the fact that the Western part of, uh, West of the Cascade mountain range, I should say, of Oregon is effectively a rainforest and it gets just a tremendous amount of precipitation. And this is well known, but if you equate that to, uh, the, the function of a, of a plant needing three basic things to survive, it, it needs sunlight it needs, um, well, four things, sunlight, soil, uh, water, uh, and, uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, if, if it gets all that, but the water is really the most variable of all of them, um, then it, it can do quite well. And, uh, Oregon is actually a pretty big state. It's, it's bigger than Washington. And so if you just look at the geography, the Cascade mountains effectively go through the same portion of Washington and Oregon on the Western side of it. And if it just has a bigger, uh, latitudinal reach, if it's taller effectively, then you would expect there'd be more timber opportunities. So it makes sense. And then the Northern part of California is, is the remnants of that forest range. And then it turns into the Sierra mountains. Uh, but they also have quite a bit of timber and it's a bit warmer. And so there, there's quite a bit coming out of there, but, um, California is quite regulated and restricted. And so I would imagine, you know, Oregon's a good bet for the United States to say, but I mean, we'll, we'll eventually, I hope get into the decline of the, the logging towns in that part of the country because uh, British Columbia, which is to the North of Washington, uh, I think, uh, far surpasses the output of the United States, uh, Western United States to say at least in terms of uh, board feet. Uh, they, uh, they have just a, a tremendous amount of uh, territory. It's much larger. And for whatever reason, they happen to be uh, more efficient. It could be just economies of scale. I don't know. Uh, but the, uh, the trade acts uh, that were passed by uh, Clinton, uh, the NAFTA trade agreements effectively for the North American Free Trade Association um, or agreement between Canada Mexico, United States, uh, opened up trade for, uh, Canadian timber into the United States without, uh, much if any import duties. And so ever since then, I mean, if you happen to buy lumber in the Pacific Northwest, you'll often find the stupid stuff is stamped with made in Canada, which is astonishing given how much wood is available in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And some of that has to do with, uh, environmentalists spotted owl as aforementioned um, somewhat red herring but there's a lot more regulation in the u.s for uh, public land cutting uh, private lands are relatively uh, more free but there's a lot of uh, one of the big facts of the united states is that the western part of the united states is effectively owned by the federal government a huge portion of it at least as opposed to the east east uh, eastern part of the, the country and so on public lands, those um, those lands are ostensibly shared by all people, not just the owners of the land, uh, as you know, in the case of a private land ownership. 
And so there's a lot more legal um, difficulty in agreeing to what to do with that land. And so hence we have these giant forest fires that effectively uh, are the result because nobody can agree of what to do with that land. So they do nothing and it just grows and grows and grows. And then, yeah, everybody doesn't want a big forest fire so that they, they fight the small ones and that just gets out of control because the, uh, the trees are uh, growing. Um, another thing I, I noticed also in these old forestry research papers was that they would actually, uh, people were pretty smart back, back in the day before computers, you know, you, you had to go to the library and actually go to the field to learn how things were, but people were certainly intelligent and they, they were doing all the statistics before all the crazy machine learning stuff, but they were still doing the math and, and looking at how things worked. And, uh, they had these very old grainy black and white photographs of these uh, stands of trees. And one, one of the things they noticed was that when you don't cut these trees, they they grow into these very uh, narrow, especially after a, a clear cut, I should say. Uh, so this is, comes to the forest management aspect of forestry. Uh, so when you cut everything down and then you replant, uh, the trees are just going to go like gangbusters. You'll you actually notice this if you've ever looked at the side of a, a highway that's been put through a forest. Uh, along the side of the road, uh, there's an embankment, and that embankment is typically devoid of anything when the road is put in because they have to clear the side of it so that there's proper drainage and and uh, so that there's not a gigantic landslide onto the road itself. So they have to clear it out. So that's effectively virgin land that then is available to the adjacent uh, vegetation. And so if you're in a forest, a lot of those trees drop pine cones and, and whatnot onto that barren land. And then you see just how quickly those trees take root and then they spring up. The problem though, is that they're all bunched up and because they, they were planted effectively at the same time, they all kind of grow at the same rate. And so you have these needle pencil neck little things sticking up. And if you let that grow for 50 years, especially in a place like Oregon, where there's lots of rainfall, they'll get pretty tall, but the, the diameter of the tree trunks are insufficient to really support an economic uh, timber operation. Uh, so certain sawmills are geared for, let's say six inches and up. Uh, if you've got something that's less than that and you, yeah, you have a lot of biomass or wood mass, but you can't get any boards out of it because it's taken up by the, uh, the bark area, the, the rounder part of the tree. You have to get to that center to get the, the, the rectangular right angle cuts of lumber. And so you, you end up with a disaster if you don't actually thin out those forests because you end up with a very densely packed forest of, of needles uh, as opposed to if you thin it, you'll have uh, larger diameter trees uh, that you can actually use. And actually the overall uh, volume of timber uh not even the usable timber is larger then because those trees can grow taller, they're healthier. Uh, and so you, you really do want to cut trees if you want to manage your forest properly. And we haven't been doing that since all this uh, environmentalist stuff since the 70s. And uh, NAFTA didn't help. And so the uh, Pacific Northwest has been a pretty hard hit. But um, maybe there, there's some more you wanted to add before we get to the decline. Oh, yeah, yeah.
there's definitely more. Um, but to what you're saying, you know, uh, we've talked about this before, but it bears worth repeating. This is often cited as as one. Go ahead, Nick. <clears throat> yeah, I just wanted to jump in real quick on the subject of public land ownership. Uh, it is, uh, if people are unfamiliar, in the uh, in the in the West, it's one of the major ongoing controversies. It, it, any kind of local politics, at least in rural areas in the West, it's usually a struggle of, of landowners. Uh, I mean, this was the, the, one of the most famous ones was uh, the. the the whole Bundy thing that happened, you know, it's kind of with the, the BLM. And while I can, I, I just want to put in that uh, public land is an important advantage in the West. It's one of the few good things I could say about America, actually, because the availability of public land in the American West. I mean, if you, you look at, I was reading about this not too long ago in England, there are no such things like national or state parks. The big land holdings are all basically uh, feudal holdings. Did you guys know this? Yeah, I mean, it was an American like, no innovation in the, to make national parks. I mean, it was, uh, again, like the Teddy Roosevelt thing. Yeah, it I, I, it's in, one place I agree with. Uh, Ken Burns, actually, in that Ken, Ken Burns said it was uh, America's best idea. It's a, it's, it's a good one, for sure. Did I he mean, really I, say I it was our best idea? I, yeah, I think Is it's kind a, of a... Weak. I think that was the subtitle of the <laughs> politically series correct, or, uh, safe thing yeah. to say, but um, it's a good idea. I'll put it that way. I don't know. The history of conservationism has a direct parallel to the history of racialism. In <laughs> Madison yeah, Grant, anyone? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we got to manage your ecosystem, yeah. right? I just want to, like, I can't. I, I, I think that. I also think that logging in a sane country, something like logging would be a state uh, industry. I don't think that that should be up to uh, private uh, business to decide what gets logged. And, I think and it I should think be that... subject to regulation, but I, I don't, I don't want uh, the Soviet union running my, uh, my entire country's timber output. I'd, I'd like some private ownership of in there personally. Well, I have to agree disagree on that one, but I mean we have just, we have an example that, uh, of a very heavily regulated uh, forest as it is, and we have problems with that. So, do you want more government or less government? I don't think it's necessarily the government. It's just you have to have the right government. I want good government. Yeah, everybody does. Everybody it's not does. More that's, or less. That's like it's a, good. Sort of uh, some libertarian. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, this government. is actually kind of an interesting discussion maybe we can get to it uh, at the end but this is this I, is by the way this is uh, a yeah. gop super shell nick mason i want good government you know <laughs> yeah I want my yes. small good government i didn't say small adam said small i said good i didn't say I good i want i think the I things like that small. are collective issues and so, um, well, you know, it's something I would something I would point out in this in this topic is that uh, I think I spoke on this a little bit earlier in the in the uh, the show here. Um, the nature of how this logging was originally done has 
was was a bit different. So it was a communitarian aspect. These were like joint stock corporations. We talked about this too. That uh, technically ran these kind of colonies or on the early days before they had you know real governorship, advisorship, and they took on a, a larger political role in of, in of themselves. But um, often it was done just because we need the wood for our town, or we need the wood for these reasons. We need the wood to build ships. We need the wood to make guns. You know, we have to fight this war. We need to fight off the Indians. We need to fight off the French, whatever. We need the wood. Please go get the wood, bring it back, do something with it. So you had people who would employ themselves as private labor. You could even, it was complicated. You could get like a temporary limited uh, uh, incorporation or charter or corporate charter. Uh, and the notion of the corporate charter is a holdover from medieval England. Um, it's changed a lot what exactly it is, but the the notion of incorporation for a specific purpose was utilized in this in this respect. So you would you would receive this charter to go fell some amount of wood on some piece of land. And with this, you could then make the profit. You could deliver it. It was your tools. It was your labor. It was your time. So you made money off of it. Uh, you own the equipment. Now you could also directly buy the land, do what you, do what thou wilt with it, um, and this is also common. So you didn't have like guys who owned five thousand like straight square acres of of uh, of uh, potential timber. Like it just wasn't that just wasn't the case. Uh, this is a, a more recent thing, and I will agree that it's not, it's not good, and it's it's going to have problems. And I also think that, uh, in some ways, the 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 conservationist effort has been uh, perverted through, like, uh, uh, let's call it oligarchic capitalist methodology where you have these very very powerful wealthy individuals who say i'm a modern day conservationist i'm buying this land because i don't want people to chop down the trees and this is a real thing i mean there's lots of, of millionaires and billionaires and powerful people who do this the u.s government does this with some frequency so the federal government i should say and sometimes you mean the like the people who are currently appearing at what they're calling COP26? Yes, some of those people, for sure. Uh, some of those people are now becoming the largest private landowners in North America. And one of their cited reasons is that they feel that they can perform better environmental management through their own company, through their own methodology. Now, what this often means is locking away those private, those potential resources to themselves uh, or just depriving everyone else of the ease, you know, ease of use of them uh, or potential exploitation of them. So this, I mean, it's changed quite a lot. The nature of the logging town, of, of the sawmill town, of, of how you, who owns these resources, how you acquire them. Often, you know, in the expansion of the United States, it was the federal government that was like desperate and was working with you know people to purchase this land or to lease it out, working with state governments, working with territories. They were desperate to get people in here 
and extract these resources. So they would sell it, they would lease it, they'd let you do whatever you wanted with it to, to an extent they, because it was a different frame of mind. It was the frame of mind, we need we need this wood. We, we need this timber, we absolutely need it. We needed to expand, we, need, we have all these goals and ambitions and the only way to fulfill them is with that. Uh, so, uh, so uh, I think I was saying before uh, our, our tangent there uh, to something that Adam was saying about uh, we have we're having the decline. We're having all these environmental problems. We're not managing our forests very well. And the U.S. Forestry Service, uh, I've actually met some people from the U.S. Forestry Service. Uh, Probably some of the nicest government employees, also probably the most down to earth, and they're often very smart. Um, they have very niche fields of study or very niche fields of expertise, and they kind of nestle in there and they just try to do good work. There's not a lot of political scheming you can do in the forestry service. So these are people who are just trying to do their job well and often care about what they're doing. Um, but the decline of the sawmill towns, we've talked about this before, and I think I've mentioned it before specifically on the show, particularly in California, uh, to the point where um, the number of sawmill towns and turn of the century California in, into the early 20th century numbered in the several hundred. There were, uh, there were entire, several hundred townships that were built around sawmills. Now, this is kind of a loose definition, but this was immense. You know, we, the whole state was dotted in, in massive mills, some small mills, massive mills. You know, it was, it was the basis of logging for California. And there weren't any issues there. They interfaced well with the U.S. Forestry Service. They interfaced well with the California state government. They interfaced well but the federal government, it was a very kind of hands-off thing. Everyone got along well. You can find sometimes, like Adam was mentioning, you know, I had done some research into this a while back. You can find these old Forestry Service manuals or documents or uh, or data where they're talking about their interactions with certain mills, certain logging companies, certain truckers, or the, the, who's who's making the roads in this area, and and so forth. And there was a lot of agreement amongst all the parties involved that everyone knew, and I've, I've explained on this show before, that California has been prone to wildfires since the, I mean, the Spanish noted this in the 16th century about California. This has been a known quantity of California for in, in its recorded history and its Geological history, we know this has been going on for thousands of years. This is a, a region of North America that just likes to light itself on fire for one reason or another. And one of the best ways to prevent catastrophic fires like we've seen in certain hit certain cities in California, like San Francisco in the early part of the 20th century, which killed a lot of people, lots of towns sometimes just get completely burned out. Lots of fortunately, lots of people die. Um, one of the best ways to do this is to actually expand milling operations and expand logging operations and to expand land management. And so there were often whole companies that were employed or would receive a contract or a charter specifically to perform some land management duty, whether it was earthworks, 
waterworks, whether there was building infrastructure, um, sometimes even just clearing brush. There were, you know, there were all these different opportunities. And often this also assisted in the development of infrastructure across California. So all of this was a win, 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 win. Everyone, <laughs> everyone was winning. Less wildfires, more infrastructure, cheaper wood, more industry, more jobs. It, it, you know, it makes zero sense in hindsight why this was uh, crucified. This industry was crucified in California over several decades, starting really in the 70s. The, these industries are defenestrated. They have federal and state regulators put up every roadblock possible. Then you have a whole collection of uh, modern day kind of bleeding hearts, uh, con conservationist types who I, I, these people don't want you to cut down a, a dead tree, let alone actually fell part of a forest for cheaper lumber prices. Like they, they don't want you to do anything. Okay, so I, I've mentioned this old growth thing about two two times at least, and this is a concept that um, I, I really believe was was just nonsense. Um, but it was argued that this spotted owl thing, which uh, actually is a uh, predator, but not an apex predator, because these owls are hunted not by loggers, but by uh, great horned owls, and which are bigger. And they uh, they hide apparently in these uh, older trees, which the great horned owls have difficulty flying around in. Now I don't know. This just sounds kind of silly to me on the surface of it. Like you can't hide in another tree, but um, there there was a lot of uh, usage of this as the reason why you can't do these uh, clear cuts, and so they argued for having uh, thinning, uh, if if not. Uh, no, no cutting at all. And, um, there were people who were like, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to actually find out some facts. And they did actually find spotted owls in smaller trees. So the, the animal adapted and, and this thing was kind of stupid, but, uh, the reality was it was, uh, obviously killing the jobs and the industry uh, as a whole. And the loggers, uh, were, were furious and when you take a, a blue collar guy's job away, uh, you're not only taking his job away, especially in the uh, middle class America that this country used to be, you, you're taking away a family's uh, source of income. And so it really devastated entire demographic uh, segments of the entire population. And we can maybe get into this later, but I'll, I'll just say it now because you know, I'll, I'll remember it at least. Um, Rambo we talked about that, that's that's a small town kind of uh, in Oregon that was more common back then where you had kind of these small small downtowns blue collar guys supporting a family on typically one income uh, the women would actually have lots of kids and this was actually a viable possible life uh, it got replaced as these mills started shutting down and the lumberjacking opportunities closed with tourism, service jobs, 
supporting that industry primarily uh, and people who were independently wealthy, mainly older rich people from places like California where housing prices had gone up so much that they could sell their house and just retire on the, on the, uh, the windfall. And it devastated the people who were working class and wanting to actually raise a family for the next generation. Uh, it, it really ruined, uh, thousands of people's lives, if not more. Um, and there was an article, I don't remember where it was, probably some, East coast leftist uh, publication, but one of the bigger ones. And it was interviewing a environmentalist who actually, after 30 years of this, cause it really got 40 years, if you want to include like the eighties, but it, it really got rolling with the regulation, you know, around eighties and nineties. She admitted that she didn't recognize the human element involved in this. And it's like, you know, heads, head, uh, hand to the forehead. Like, how do you not recognize there's people involved? And I think this gets to a deeper psychological aspect of the activist who typically is not somebody who has accomplished much in their life. Uh, they've often found themselves in situations with other people they don't like, they, they don't get along with. Uh, and so they, they, grab onto these causes because it gives them some sort of sense of self-worth and status socially as well. And they, uh, they cling to it just like, uh, the climate change stuff or COVID now, because it gives them a sense of importance and they're really religious fanatics in the sense that they, they can't see anything, but the, the cause that they hold so dear and they tout themselves as like a, a force for good, a virtuous person. Look at me, I'm, I'm saving the forest. But what they're really doing is they're using this platform to elevate themselves. And this is my cynical view of it. And the consequences be damned. And there were heavy consequences to the middle class, the working class, especially. And this entire way of life was destroyed. Um, same thing that happened in, uh, the UK actually, when Margaret Thatcher shut down all the, the coal mining towns, uh, they had the same dynamic. It was these working class families that would live off the, the man's income. And when she shut down those, uh, mines, which they were losing money on and they were actually state owned by the way. Um, and they had to make a, a budget decision. Uh, it, it destroyed those, uh, those people's uh, lives. Now I'm not pro or against this particular policy in England. I'm just drawing a comparison and that happened in the United States, not for necessarily economic reasons, but for political reasons, which I think is always like the dumbest reason you could possibly do something. Uh, it was like ideological. Let me jump in on that. So this is coming back to there's no reason that these are mutually exclusive things that you can have conservation and you can have logging as a part of that too. <laughs> you can, these can, I totally agree. I, I don't, I don't support <laughs> these are not, clear cutting by the way. And, and I haven't even gotten into have... that, but uh, I think a lot of the uh, pressure that the government put on the, uh, the logging industry was from these, uh, these nut jobs who 
had no idea what they were talking about. It, and they came from places like California where this industry wasn't integral to the life of these people. And they, they destroyed people's this, lives. This is the thing. America, it's, it's fundamentally corrupt. You're going to find corruption of capitalism. You're going to find the corruption of the professional uh, radical activist types typically in collusion, by the way, with the capitalists behind the scenes, many such scandals to that nature uh, or with the political class. You know, there's all kinds of corruption in that scene. And the problem is a question like something like logging. This is a very serious question of planning. I mean, if you're going to have something resembling civilization at scale, this is a this is a big planning question. And in America, it essentially is either shut it down or sell it to the international capitalists or shut it down, pretend it's conservation and sell it to the international capitalists. Sierra Club, anybody? Well, the, the capitalism took different forms. Uh, and I mentioned the, the tourism, and I should also add the real estate industry. Uh, the logging industry, it, it, it still exists in the Pacific Northwest, but it has declined. I mean, the, uh, the annual production of uh, lumber as measured by board feet has probably gone down by, I don't know, 30, 40, if not more percent. So the logging industry has declined. Yes, there's larger corporations involved. Uh, frankly, these are the only ones that can really survive. Um, now, I'm not supporting large mega corporations taking over everything. Um, I think there should be a larger number of smaller companies, in my personal view. But the industry itself has declined. Whether it's owned by smaller or larger is, is really um, an, a secondary issue. Uh, but I, what has replaced it? The land, by the way, in the long term, this is something that happens all over the world when they they will designate an area to be excluded from development right. uh, under some kind of vague conservation grounds and then right. sell it off. Right, and that's what I mean by the real this estate thing. Uh, and, I think I think housing has, has taken over much more of this. Go ahead. When it, when it comes to the logging industry, if I was to be conspiratorial, I would. Uh, think that maybe the people are thinking about this back in the starting in the 70s you know if you deindustrialize these rural areas uh, as a mindset that comes from a certain type of the international class yeah i think i think you're both onto something particularly on california and yeah we should maybe switch gears specifically to california uh at least for now. Uh, when I was researching this a while back, uh, I came across this like very interesting um, government report, and it was uh, issued in 1990. Historical effects of logging on the forests of the Cascade in Sierra Nevada ranges of California. Uh, and it goes into pretty extensive detail on types of wood, how this was being performed in these specific mountain ranges, uh, there's this one very interesting graphic in here I think we'll throw into the video. Um, uh, considering this is like you know, pre-ease uh, of use digital imagery, how they uh, were able to map this out is, is uh, pretty interesting. But um, it notes from 1850 to 1950, you had this massive growth along a couple mountain ranges in central and northern California. Uh, along, and it's focused 
on that specific the specific mountain regions along with uh i would call the wider jefferson region or most of california from uh everywhere north of the bay area to the oregon border along with some regions of the sort of central interior uh, and even parts of southern california and even you know san jose and ventura You've had logging, sawmills, wood product manufacturers. Um, and this is a big source of employment for California. And part of what this paper notes is that while the wood production for the Cascade and Sierra Nevada, Sierra Nevada mountain region sort of timber zones peaked in 1950s, uh, they continued to be, they continued to grow moderately well. They continued to drive home a lot of revenue and support a lot of jobs and kept lumber prices low. Uh, well into the 80s. And it was really in the late 80s, early 90s, when um, the deindustrialization agenda, the drawdown of our utilization of our domestic raw materials kind of came to a head. Government regulations that were out of control, targeting mines, timber zones, targeting farmers, dairy farmers, ranchers. Uh, targeting factories, shipyards, ports. Suddenly, it's a 20-year environmental impact study to add 18 feet to a dam or to build a new highway. So this kind of fits a general pattern. Uh, there's a there's a study, uh, and it looks like the USDA does these with some level of frequency. I was having difficulty finding a more recent one, uh, but it doesn't really neg uh, neglect or doesn't defeat the point I'm about to make. So they issued this report called the California Forest Products Industry in Super Harvest 2012, uh, and it's depressing, to say the least. It has some nice images, though, but it's depressing. Uh, Here's what they say. A total of 77 primary forest products facilities operated in California during 2012. 77. And this isn't because we've invented some otherworldly technology in sawmills and in, in wood product manufacturing and logging. We haven't. Technology's improved, not that much. The industry is just bottomed out by 2012. So almost 10 years ago. At the time, they said this included 30 sawmills, two veneer plants, uh, eight manufacturers of primary wood products, and uh, 11 bark and mulch facilities, and 26 bioenergy plants. So the, the, the last vestiges of this industry, which are completely collapsing and ruining much of rural California's uh, economic potential, uh, and actually probably halting and stunting the continuous innovation of manufacturing process, manufacturing processes, metallurgy, wood management technology, trucking, everything that all the advances that continuously come from building out an industry and keeping it going. 
It's all been stunted now, at least locally and regionally, if not nationally. And everyone is the worse off. We've had a lumber crisis this year. This country is literally running out of lumber. Prices are through the roof. As Adam mentioned earlier, we're importing vast sums from Canada for some reason, which... Which has been going on for a long time. Which has been going on for a long time. It's cost. It's it's cheaper. Which was one of the carve-outs, which was one of the the carve-outs in NAFTA. So this is all somewhat coordinated on some level. We defenestrate the American side of that industry. You empower the Canadian side. I I have no idea why. <laughs> if I was president of the United States tomorrow, I would demand that Canada shut down every sawmill until we got ours back up, or I would uh, launch a nuclear strike in Toronto. Like, you know, I, I, well, the, it, it's being, pretty simple. You just put back in place what was there before that supported you, those industries. You, you, around you just put this. import tariffs on their lumber. And, yeah, uh, you're being bullied and cajoled by this upstart gay country of 30 million people. <laughs> I mean, we're not being bullied. It was fucking H.W. Bush who <laughs> wanted NAFTA to begin with. I mean, he had this stupid idea of like, oh, we're going to create the North American Union. It was like a the United uh, States of North America or something. Uh, it, it was... It's just this fucking dickhead, you know, plan that these guys have at Chappaquiddick when they're getting naked and burning things on the, on the beach. It's like they, they just <laughs> have these grandiose notions of power and they don't they don't give a shit and they don't even understand the effects it has on the, the little person. So well, <laughs> that's what this, this is why was. they this is why they wanted the logging industry to stop because they wanted all those like thick forests to protect their <laughs> They're sacrificed to Moloch or whatever, whatever they're doing out there. All those, um, all those Yale skull and bones freaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah all these all these from New England, lady, ironically. Homosexuals. You know, yeah. gotta understand uh, like, what a decline. I mean, Maine. We haven't really talked about the decline in Maine, but I mean that place has been devastated. Uh, you talk about. I mean, it's same same pattern everywhere. You take out manufacturing. I was, yeah, take I was, out I was the gonna industry, bring it up towards drugs. Towards the end. Drugs come in, and that's that's just yeah. been one bad hard hit area of the United States. As has the logging towns of the uh, the western states as well. Yeah. So ever since that report came out, um, a couple interesting things have happened. In 2015, we had the California Redwood Company closed its last remaining sawmill, put 100 people out of a job. In 2016, Sierra Pacific announces permanent closure of the Arcata sawmill. A couple hundred jobs lost there. So over the last 10 years, we've actually declined very precipitously since that report in uh, the number of sawmills, lumber facilities, lumber yards, wood product manufacturers in California. Uh, by my estimations and what I've looked into in my research here, um, we're well below, or California's well below 20 in terms of sawmills. Uh, it could be below 10 at this rate in, uh, by the end of the decade, uh, which will mean that California, the most populous state in the country, 
which has immense demand for lumber, timber, for wood products, for a litany of reasons, will no longer be sourcing any of it, even remotely, locally. Uh, it'll have to import it from other states, other countries. Who does this benefit? Don't know. Well, if you actually want to know who it might benefit, I came across an interesting story in Forbes, uh, published a little over three years ago. And I, might, I might have read this. Was this about Sierra Pacific? Uh, no. This okay. is uh. I'll I'll bring that up later if it if it ties in. Go ahead. Well, this has been a man named uh, Emerson, Parky Aldous Emerson. Uh, the story is called "A Billion Dollar Fortune from Timber and Fire." I think and, I did uh, read this. So, what's yeah. his company? It's not Sierra Pacific. He's got a couple companies. <laughs> okay. He's one of these guys. He's buying up so he uh, salvage have, lumber, right? From he does, California. He does have Sierra Pacific Industries. He has okay. a couple other ones. There you so go. There you go. That, I, I read this. Yeah, it's a good article. Go ahead. Okay. Yes. Uh, it's fascinating. Because now we know who is scooping up what remains of the California and West Coast lumber sawmill, wood product manufacturing industries, the once, you know, pride and joy of many townspeople and independent startup businessmen and uh, patriotic people scooped up for pennies on the dollar. Uh, so this is an interesting story about uh, this guy who goes by Red Emerson. I don't know why he calls himself Red. Uh, I don't Really care, because um, he's part of that generation where that yeah. sort of thing was <laughs> pretty common. I'm sure it's just some boomer fuck. And uh, we had uh, so you know, this guy. He his it's your Pacific. His specific uh, goal has been to buy up land, buy up contracts after fires. Um, buy up equipment from downturned uh, wood product manufacturers and sawmills and then resell it or put it into another operation. And Which on the surface of it, I have no problem with. I mean, right. when you have a fire, you've got a lot of usable timber left, which you actually have to harvest fairly quickly because that stuff will rot if you don't. And I think it's a fine use. Now, Maybe the conspiracy theory is that this is this is des this is desired because he gets sort of these things literally at a fire sale price, uh, <laughs> as opposed to cutting the trees before the friggin' forest burns down. I don't I don't know. I mean, you'd have to like you know have evidence of that, but that's Salve maybe a, a possibility. Yeah, here's a here's a piece from the article. Salvage logging is just one extreme example of how Emerson has. I of course his, have a big problem with this. Yeah, has built his lumber business over nearly seven decades from buying spare parts for his sawmills at bankruptcy auctions to aggressively acquiring California land when other timber companies were bankrupt and selling. Emerson is successfully carved out a fortune by being opportunistic and cheap 
That's enabled him to become America's richest lumberman. And in these times of increased scrutiny, the nation's last great lumber baron. Uh, over the decades, Emerson has amassed more timberland in California than anyone else. He's the third largest landowner in America, according to the land report. Overall, Sierra Pacific is the fourth largest lumber producer in the U.S. The company gets around 70% of its annual revenue from the sale of lumber. In California, about half comes from logs cut down on its land and 16% from logs in national forests, much of which is salvaged wood. Also operates a millwork division, which makes door frames, moldings, manufacture of high-end custom-built windows. So you see... <laughs> The decline in the wood product manufacturers, the sawmills, the logging towns, logging industry. It's not gone. It's just been conglomerated. Yes, I, I think it, it, it favors guys like this yes. who are good political operators as opposed to maybe captains of industry who know how to run things more efficiently or effectively or quality of life or land in this case, they're good with politics. And I think this is at the root of any corrupt society where you have people going for political advantage as opposed to uh, competition based on merit. And I'm obviously generalizing with this guy as an example, but I think that's what you're getting at, that the oligopolistic pattern that we've seen over past 30, 40 years is represented by this type of guy. Yeah. But what, Adam, what's the standard of merit in logging? Well, that's open to discussion. I mean, obviously, if you are getting the same amount of lumber with less... Uh, cutting of trees and i think we probably all agree that that's good right but there's other ways to measure this um but i'm not i'm not saying this in a sort of uh you know uh dr seuss uh cut everything down kind of way I'm, I'm saying or measure it in terms of dollars i'm saying you could also measure it in terms of uh, sustainable management and i don't i don't want to use that word in like the conspiracy sense that this is like a drive to basically restrict development but i mean it in a sincere way is that if you have a piece of land you'd like it to be there in good shape for future generations i think if you could devise a logging strategy that utilizes that land without damaging it irreparably for the future generations i think we could all agree that's a good thing that's what i'm getting at uh, but as opposed to somebody who's cozying up with politicians and just getting it all for himself, my, that, that's kind of what I'm getting from this uh, example, which I, I don't approve of. I don't think that's good merit. I think somebody who's a good operator, who's uh, factoring in the factors that are relevant to all concern, or at least most concern, which includes... Uh, you know, the, the triple bottom line thing. I mean, maybe you can kind of scoff at that as corporate uh, PR, but think of it this way. Think of it in terms of employment opportunities. Think of it in terms of uh, environmental sustainability uh, and think of it in terms of uh, cost. Uh, if you can do it efficiently, if you can do all those things at once, that's a good operator and that person should be yeah, rewarded, I'm, I think. I'm glad you clarified, Adam, because yes, uh, that's, that's a good answer. Um, I just <laughs> neoliberal democratic regimes are incapable of planning long term outside of 
you know, rough estimations of how much they're going to be able to extract over the you know, next whatever, 50 years, or how many people they're going to have to kill. I would generally agree, but you know, the, the irony of this whole like a climate summit stuff, we mentioned this before the show and the World Economic Forum, it's an attempt of neoliberalism to do that. It's basically trying to capture the politicians into their fold and run the world in really a centrally planned kind of way. Um, it's, it's an attempt. I mean, there's been other attempts, but, uh, you know, I, I think we need to recognize that. Yeah, but they run it like Jews because they are Jews. They view they don't have a, <laughs> a good they don't have of, a yeah. pro-social, har- harmonious view of how these things work together. How well, yeah, people I think that's the big downside with, for us uh, Goyim. It's, nature uh, outside, we're not really man. part of the discussion. Is, so, yeah, yeah, they but they don't have. When I talk about conservation, I have a totally other thing in mind than when these people talk about it. These people are just concerned with how they're going to isolate themselves from the consequences that they're creating and how it is that they're going to be able to live comfortably exploiting the entire fucking earth ball for the next uh, however many hundred years they think about in terms of a time horizon. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know what these people think. I just know that they view they view everything that isn't them as something to exploit. You know, and I'm, I'm by no means am I anti-logging either. I think logging performs a valuable role in conservation as oh, well as I've great. seen what it's done also to these, to these towns, you yeah. know, it's can do all of these things together. I mean, the way things are done in the American frontier is not, not something that we can extrapolate forward. The, the frontiers have closed. I mean, back then it made sense that, whatever you contract somebody to do this because it needs to be done there's only so many human and capital resources etc and so you, you make do and certain type of classical american cronyism was how this worked but with the frontiers closed uh, i think a, a different attitude towards both labor and conservation and production has is necessary and we're not getting it out of this system we probably could all agree on that. It's the challenge is how do you manage it? Um, and it's, uh, it's tough. There's lots of different interest groups. But I, mean, I think we can all recognize that the one who's gotten the least representation is actually the people who live in these places. That's, that's I think, the, the most human crime that's on display here. Is that it's really it's outsiders who are dictating to these communities how they have to conduct themselves. And I, that, that was the, uh, the real frustration that was on display when they were putting up uh, bumper stickers like uh, kill an owl, save a logger, uh, because this stupid animal that nobody really has any relationship with really has become more important than families. And, and that, that to me is the, the biggest crime here. Well, then, but... The biggest crime to me is that the American response to this is fucking being a retard. <laughs> it's like, why not both? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? Lives. I mean, nobody would disagree that with the retardation on display, but specifically, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> 
it's just a typical typical response where it's like you can either be a certain kind of retard or you can be a different kind of retard i mean a a, a pro-social culture would not have too many difficulties with this like how do we keep people working how do we have industry how do we manage your like right. when you say this like easier right. said than not it's not actually that complicated you just no, remove I, all <laughs> elements from it's society. complicated in this country i agree but if you go to a place like japan you know you remove them they, 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 from can, society. they can figure it out okay well yeah when they're gone the owls the and the loggers <laughs> and all of us can live in peace <laughs> you need to bring back the samurai Japan actually had an interesting problem with deforestation, but I think that's another story, another episode. But they basically deforested the entire island. I think by the late Tokugawa era. Um, and they have the trees. Japanese... They have a lot of trees, actually, but they're good at managing. Well, they grew back. Trees grow back. Right. Right. Yeah. It takes a little while, but well, Tokugawa <laughs> was was the day, was the first Japan, unifying you, emperor that might have something Japan to do with has what your a point here. Huge demand for lumber, like everything, right. and like and disposable boxes yes. for like your candy bar need to be pa- made. Part up of wood. and to be fair you know, to <laughs> uh, supporters of Japan, Japan, you're right. Actually, uh, doesn't have enough lumber to support its demand and in the 80s the um it's mostly out of indochina that they well maybe nowadays but in the in the 80s they were actually exporting from oregon a gigantic uh, sum of wood and one of the frustrations of the people who lived there was that the japanese were simply buying the timbers they weren't buying cut lumber and it was uh it was at a time when Japan was really focused on manufacturing everything themselves. And so they really only wanted to import raw materials, but they were, um, they were hated, uh, in, in the mill towns because, uh, the mill towns used to sell lumber and, and obviously it's a value added product, uh, as opposed to sawn timber, which is essentially just <laughs> right above a raw material where it's like sitting on the ground that it's just, it's, it's, pulled off the ground but when you mill it you know you're you're actually dimensioning it and uh, treating it kiln drying it all that stuff um they didn't do that and so it, it was coming from other places uh, long story short and you know they they my point though about japan being a example of a society that can accomplish what you're talking about is that they they do manage uh, their society as far as i could tell uh, compared to most other countries in a way that does balance these things that we're, I think agreeing are important. They, they balance the employment, they balance the environment, uh, and they balance the economy overall, uh, in terms of overall competitiveness. Uh, and they can do that. I mean, you know, it it doesn't, it's nothing new to the audience of our show, but I mean, it's a racially homogenous place that has uh, intact borders and an intact government that is represented by the people who live there. And we don't have that in America. And that's why it's hard. That's why it's hard. Theoretically, it's easy. I agree with you. But in and practice, it's not. And measure respect for the, for the natural world, you know, for the, for the fucking, you know, Shinto trees. Like, it, it, there's a certain type of American barbarian who has just gone full hog on some kind of Old Testament mindset. Where it's just like, if it moves, it belongs to me. It's for me to take. Not saying that's what motivates logging or anything, but I, I think the Japanese as a whole tend to have a little bit more respect 
Uh, like littering is not something you see in Japan. Unfortunately, you see a lot of nope. it in America. You don't even see trash cans in Japan. About to say Japan doesn't produce a lot of garbage. Oh, <laughs> I mean, what they do is they burn it. They like like everything has to be individually wrapped. Yeah, they, they burn so it. The, you know, all those little the, the, um, white and blue but, towers with lights on them, with but no windows. Those are incinerators. You see a ton of those in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, they produce they produce a lot of garbage actually. Um, which is another thing. I mean, like the pollutant. I, we're not going to do the whole global warming thing today. But when people, I mean, lumber is a sustainable resource. <laughs> like trees grow back, <laughs> yeah, man. Correctly, like <laughs> you can continue to have trees. Trees you are know, great. All these people whine about things that don't really have anything to do with pollution. I mean, they don't care about all the chemicals that are being put into the waters. No. Uh, you know, byproducts of industrial production, not, not uh, antidepressants and drugs that turn your kids gay though maybe they're doing that too maybe they're doing that too but i'm refer- i'm referring to other types of pollution that come from industrialization these people yeah. never seem to whine about those which are worth whining about it and you're worth complaining well like, let, let's be honest most of these people could, couldn't get a, a a job uh you know as an actual scientist and so they just uh, they're the foot soldiers they don't actually understand anything um, sure, yeah, some well, of them might. The priests but, you of know. the financial oligarchy. They're worse than priests. They're they're the they're the mob that that runs out of the church with pitchforks to to burn you at the stake. I mean, they're not even priests. Well, they they are the people that you're expected to pay your uh, climate indulgences to, right? That's that's what they're rolling with now. Oh, like, are you talking about the bankers, or like, you, who are you talking about? Of, of the world. Well, yeah, that's that's the that, yeah, those, well, are, ma, ma those are the merchants, you know, <laughs> merchant the class. priests in white lab coats. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, yeah, of course, because the merchant class is the is the the new nobility. Well, yeah. The funny thing and, about and their uh, priests wear white coats. Talking about Japan and and China as well, the merchants were um, by uh, government policy, I think, the lowest order of the society. Uh, samurai being the top, of course, but. Uh, I think the scholar also was in there and they were no, higher, the, the, they were the, much the higher samurai. than the merchants. <laughs> yeah. It's a traditional order. Yeah. Um, I, the, we, we don't need to talk about the climate thing, but just to finish my point there, they go after, I mean, these, the, the nature of these types of politics always seem to be targeting things that are very disproportionate in the sense that they, they talk about conservation or they talk about pollution and they don't necessarily go after the worst offenders. They go after people by a different criteria. And it's weird that it's a rural white working class, small towns that might exist as some kind of power base outside of, you know, the urbanite capital is California and Sacramento. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just a total coincidence. I think you're, uh, you're onto a pattern, Nick. I think you're onto a pattern. So the deeper you go into this article, we have a discussion here about what this business, this uh, Sierra Pacific business is actually doing. And they're accused by several people of potentially making this problem worse. So you have one side that claims it's a it, it, one you know this uh, individual uh, Chad Hansen 
scientist who studies post-fire logging and his nonprofit, the John Muir Project, has won injunctions against four Sierra Pacific post-fire contracts. He says the degraded landscape fire is not the thing that's creating areas of devastation. It's logging, especially post-fire logging. Sierra Pacific rejects the scientist's analysis, arguing that the process can speed up recovery. It's about extracting the value we can from a bad situation. Uh, regardless, logging in national forests is costly for taxpayers, says Hansen, who estimates they are on the hook for a billion a year, at least 500 million of which is directly related to post-fire salvage. That's the amount the government pays to build roads to remote areas destroyed by fires for herbicides, the Forest Service sprays prior to logging to make clear-cutting easier. It's a bad deal financially for taxpayers. It's a great deal for the mills, says economist Ernie Nimi, who has studied the impact of forest management since the 70s. It's hard to justify any salvage logging. It's like they're bandits. Uh, and later on, uh, we have the high timber costs. I'm sorry. In 1980, amid the buying frenzy, Sierra Pacific purchased 73% of its timber from the government lost 13 million, but there's a silver lining. The high timber costs drove rivals out of regulation heavy California. In 1988, Santa Fe Southern Pacific Corporation sold 522,000 acres of prime timberland to Sierra Pacific. The Santa Fe deal turned Sierra Pacific into the biggest timberland owner in California. Bank of America gave us credit for half a billion dollars, laughs Emerson, and it's more than we deserved. It was a monstrous deal for us. Even with its massive land holdings, Sierra Pacific relies on national forests to supplement the timber from its own land at a time when the federal government sells less than one-fourth of what it did four decades ago. Over the past seven years, around 16% of Sierra Pacific's California timber has come from the U.S. Forest Service land. Uh, in, the, in 2015, at the peak of the California drought, the company acquired 58% of its federally sourced logs through post-fire salvage logging. Sierra Mills, I'm sorry, Sierra Pacific has stacked the deck in its favor by building a dominant network of sawmills in NorCal. Now has 10 mills there at eight locations, and they are all close to federal forests. So as I was saying earlier, the rate at which the mills have collapsed in the state of California is, is immense, and the only people still operating any mills are is one company. It's a, It's basically coming down to one company that does all the lumber work, all the mill work, all the wood manufacturing work, all the post-fire salvage logging work. It's, it's one company that controls the timberland, the lumber, the milling, all of it. So the, the decline here of this industry and the uh, diffusion when an industry is doing well, there's a there's a there's a well there's a, a widely regarded phenomena of diffusion where you have lots of people involved in the industry, diffused ownership, lots of sub industries built around it. It's very dynamic. It's a well capitalized, well financed. It's not too hectic. Has good rapid growth. Okay. That has come to an end. That era has come to an end across the United States for the lumber industry, for the timberland management industry, from the timber zone management industry, for the wood product manufacturing industry, for the sawmill industry, and particularly in places like New England, in the Pacific Northwest, and especially in California, 
where all these towns have been destroyed as this industry has been wiped out by regulation and you effectively have now one dominant player left in the game that has a close relationship with the state government, at the very least, potentially the federal government, and keeps it this way and is profiting off of the rapid decline of this industry, this wider industry as a whole in this state and in this region of the country. And this is this, you know, this company is really just epitomizes like the the decline of the American economy and the decline of the American way of life in general. There's there's, there's a passage in here. The company is just as scrappy today. Sierra Pacific often buys whole pallets of used steel, spare parts like motors, car batteries, farm tools at bankruptcy options or on eBay. The IT guys build old computer parts, build from old computer parts. Because it picks up so much in bulk at auctions or through bankruptcy, Sierra Pacific has set up an eBay store to sell the parts it doesn't use. We bought an airplane that was sitting in Russia for two years. We bought it for the parts. A lot of our competitors don't do this kind of stuff. Uh, being thrifty and aggressive has helped build the business, but it has created plenty of challenges. If the biggest one it's ever faced was a lawsuit that resulted in a record $122.5 million settlement. The Department of Justice alleged in 2009 that Sierra Pacific's negligence helped lead to the Moonlight Fire, which burned 46,000 acres. In the summer of 2007, Sierra Pacific hired a small firm owned by one person to log in that area. A bulldozer brought in and operated by Howell's Forest Harvesting allegedly struck a rock and caused a spark. The loggers left without checking the site for flames or smoke. A bigger red flag, the DOJ argued, was that Howell's equipment had already started three other fires that summer. So here's something very interesting. You have a company that profits exclusively off of and exclusively, but profits primarily from government contracts on uh, lumbering on federal land, post-fire salvage cleanup operations that has been accused, at, in this case and a few others, of being involved in starting such fires. It then uses those profits, it uses its close relationship with the government to help increase regulation, presumably, drives out competitors, defenestrates these towns, these regions. They come in, they swoop up what they want, acquire what they need, and consolidate. So what do we make of this? Over the course of just over 400 years, barely 400 years since the early days of the Virginia colony and the first lumbering activity, the first woodworking activity, maybe the first mills in America. Uh, this is where we've, we've come to. We crossed the continent as part of this uh, immense expedition into lumbering, into the building of company towns, into the um, massive exploitation, but smart utilization of our, of our kind of, God-given natural resources, we've made immense technological advancements in those endeavors and because of those endeavors, created an immensely high quality of life, 
guaranteed all sorts of amenities to the people of this country. And we've declined. Now we're here. A company that works off of salvaging the last vestiges of a declining industry that could and did for a long time help prevent such ecological disasters, fires, chemical spills. People had a better civic integrity. They didn't want to do those things. They, they, they wanted to prevent them. It was not only good for business, it was just the right thing to do. Now we have a company potentially implicated in starting fires to then profit off of. Uses that money to slowly kind of wipe out the last elements of that industry in California. And this is the tale that's not too different from the tale that's spun in Pacific Northwest, Maine, elsewhere. It's the same story. Slightly different beginning, maybe a different ending a little bit. But it's almost always the same story. These places, they rise up. You have these logging towns, you have the lumberjack ethos, lots of advancements made. Supplies are depleted. That's not the end of the world. People move elsewhere, they bring those skills elsewhere. But what you don't recover from are these kinds of oligarchs who come in. They consolidate it. They work with you know, sort of ham-fisted goons in the government to make it even more difficult to operate in. They reap the profits, they control all of it. And as we're seeing this year, and as I mentioned earlier, lumber prices have never been higher. It is now difficult to get basic wood supplies, wood products for and, anything. And I think that has a lot to do with the uh, cartelization of the industry. Yes. Uh, I, I, I've, I, I've done a fair amount of... Uh, construction on for, for my own projects but also people I know uh, for a part of my life and I've talked to a fair number of people who are in that supply chain and a lot of them would basically say that a lot of these sawmills are manipulating prices uh, it's it's not so much that they can't get workers uh, at least now they were claiming before that because of uh, unemployment benefits being so high they couldn't bring people back to the sawmills, which is somewhat believable because the sawmill is a uh, kind of a brutal job. It's uh, not very romantic. You're basically doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's loud. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hot in the summer months. Uh, it's unhealthy. Breathing sawdust is actually really bad for you. Um, and, uh, it's not the greatest job, but it is a job and, uh, they probably were having some trouble, but I have heard this more than once that these mills are basically just stacking up sawn lumber and keeping it in inventory to uh, boost prices. And uh, I, I believe that. I also know that a lot of the people who are closer to these uh, these companies, and look, this is nothing new. Like This is the history of man. This is how things work. But I, I don't think there's some idealistic solution that we can easily implement. Maybe there is a solution, but... What is also happening is the uh, people who are closer to the sawmills, who are larger wholesale buyers, larger companies, working with larger companies, they can get better deals. But if you go to Home Depot, the prices are still really ridiculously high, more so than they should be based on the uh, wholesale prices, which have dropped. So there's another example of the little guy getting getting screwed. 
And it's, um, again, not that uncommon throughout most of history. I think what is unusual, though, is that America didn't always work that way. I think there was a short period in time where the middle guy, at least, the, the littler, more middling-sized guy, did have more of a, a stake. And I think that's what we mean by, you know, it's it's declined from that. Uh, if you go back 200, 400, 600 years to certain parts of the world, it was worse where you, you had all the power being controlled by some tyrant, and I don't think the little guy had any power. But I think what was unique about America was that there was, uh, you know, the, the small family independent frontiersman that did have a stake and did have a say in his own future. And I think that's gone away. Yeah. To um, kind of top this off. So the end of this, you know, towards the end of this uh, article, this story, uh, they mentioned that this, uh, Emerson cancer, the Sierra Pacific cancer, is uh, preparing to spread elsewhere. Uh, they were attempting to move into Georgia in Florida. Uh, they've successfully moved into Washington State. Uh, presumably to repeat the same model. Buy out timberland. Find ways to get weird government contracts. Consolidate sawmills, so forth. Uh, it's now the largest lumber producer in Washington. Uh, and Washington and Oregon had some of their own companies for a very long time. Uh, Oregon and Washington shared uh, this legacy of uh, Weyerhaeuser. And uh, this is over 100 They're still around. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're now fighting for their life as a company. Their primary competitor is the Sierra Pacific Emerson cancer that just sort of seeks to, you know, to slowly emulsify the rest of the industry. Um, I wanted to bring this up earlier uh, in an article on the timber street in uh, Oregon by, uh, by Mr. William Robbins. Uh, he, uh, he noted uh, with timberlands in Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Ohio rapidly diminishing during the late 19th century, uh, Great Lakes timber locators prowled Northwest Forest on behalf of lumbermen such as Charles Axel Smith and Frederick Weyerhaeuser. Laying claim to huge timberlands for their moneyed patron, Smith took advantage of his properties on the southern Oregon coast to open a state-of-the-art sawmill in Coos Bay, and his ships made regular trips to the company's finishing mill at Bay Point, northeast of San Francisco. By the dawn of the early 20th century, several large mills lined Portland's waterfront, producing sawn lumber for Californian and Asian markets. On the Columbia River, Portland businessman Simon Benson pioneered a new technique in the early decades of the 20th century using ocean-going tugboats to pull large cigar-shaped log rafts to a sawmill in San Diego. The Great Lakes lumbermen and other investors who speculated in timberland at the turn of the 20th century operated through railroad real estate agents, federal state land offices to amass huge holdings. They played fast and lose state and federal land laws to transfer thousands of acres of public land to private ownership. Um, 
And the story sort of goes on, but perhaps, you know, we were bemoaning the um, the strange consolidation in the industry now and uh, the cartelization, as Adam said. But I think that the the roots of this were already being planted uh, 100 years ago with this sort of practice. Uh, and then maybe, you know, we've we really drifted away from that more idyllic uh, Yankee and upper Midwest logging town, lumber town, sawmill industry, wood, you know, the local wood shop owner, the local lumber yard owner, the local uh, wood product maker and uh, all that sort of thing. The local tool maker and you have you know, the roaming bands of lumberjacks, the explorers, very 19th century, very late 18th century, sort of the idyllic period of America. Um, and I think that we we look back on that time with a lot of fondness because it wasn't it was maybe the last era in this industry where it appears there was still plenty of room to just start anew, just to enter this this fantastic, this very adventurous industry, explore North America in the process, uh, provide something meaningful, real product, real value, real industrial growth. Uh, that people really needed. There was a lot of, I think, meaning people derive from from all this. Uh, but perhaps, um, perhaps now, you know, as with everything in a in a decaying empire, the the roots were there a long time ago, and it just becomes more obscene as time goes on, becomes more cancerous as time goes on, and everything it all starts to cannibalize itself and. Uh, Maybe eventually it will be like the USSR. There will just be a a sort of pseudo state-run um, timber management company that benefits a few people and doesn't seem to really afford any benefit to anyone else. Yeah, I would like to see in the future on the North American continent would be. Uh, some kind of organization that was responsible simultaneously for conserving both the forests, uh, the well-being of working-class people, and as well as uh, racial hygiene. It can just be called the Department of Conservation, and in fact, it can be the only government institution that really fucking matters. Melting snows of Ontario Where the wind will make you shiver T'was the month of May Up in Georgian Bay Near the mouth of the Musquash River Where the bears prowl And the coyotes howl And you can hear the osprey scream Back in 99 We were cutting pine And sending it down the stream Young Sandy Gray came to go home bay all the way from PEI Where the weather's rough and it makes it tough, no man's afraid to die 
And he came a smile and 30,000 islands was the place to claim his glory. Now Sandy's gone, but his name lives on. This is Sandy's story. Young Sandy Gray lives on a day in the echoes of a mighty owl. Listen close and you'll hear a ghost in this story that I tell. Boys, this story that I tell. Sandy Gray was boss of the men who'd toss the trees onto the shore. They'd come and go till they built a flow a hundred thousand logs or more. Then he'd ride them down towards Severn Sound to cut them up in the mills for timber. And the ships would haul spring, summer, and fall till the ice came in December. On Sabbath day, Big Sandy Gray came into camp with a peavey on his shoulder. With a thunder crack, he dropped his axe, and the room got a little bit colder. Said, "Come on, all you, we got work to do. We gotta give her all we can give her." There's a jam of logs at the little jog near the mouth of the Musquash River. With no time to pray on the Lord's day, they were hoping for God's forgiveness. But the jam was high in a troubled sky, and they set out about their business. They poked with their poles and ran with the rules and tried to stay on their feet. Every trick they tried, one man cried, "This log jam's got us beat." But Sandy Gray was not afraid, and he let out a mighty yell. I'll be damned, we'll break this jam, or it's breakfast in hell, boys. Breakfast in hell. Giants to 
fences and new walls. And if you listen close, you'll hear a ghost down by Sandy Gray Falls. Through the tops of the trees, you'll hear in the breeze the echoes of a mighty yell. I'll be damned, we'll break this jammerous breakfast in hell. And Sandy Gray lives on a day in the echoes of a mighty L. I'll be damned, we'll break this jammer. It's breakfast in hell, boys. 